Armstrong. I'm Paper Ann. This is Star Trek. <laughs> um, we're trying an intro after the music you heard on this one, and it didn't feel natural, and we'll see how it works in editing. Yeah, but We'll fade in, we'll fade we'll, in. We'll but figure yeah. it out. What is Star Trek? Oh my gosh, so glad that you asked. Um, Star Trek is a spinoff podcast that we love to watch with the same two hosts, who you just heard, Aaron and Peter. Uh, and it was started because Aaron uh, is a lifelong Star Trek fan. Uh, definitely uh, would would mark himself as a somewhat of an obsessive um, for about the about the grades of six through eight. Uh, and then four years after doing a movie podcast with Peter Moran, I find out Peter's never seen any Star Trek movies, uh, essentially, or any of the original ten pre Abrams reboot, and uh, hasn't seen any of the TV shows. Didn't even know what a wharf was. Really, <laughs> um, wharf. Wharf? Like where they cast ships off from? <laughs> Are you saying there's piers in space? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so we decided to, to start Star Trek. And we started with the original series, a little intro, a few episodes to get him into it. And then we went through all six movies, uh, joined by uh, an episode each time that was kind of either thematically appropriate or had some component that was referenced in the movie we were about to watch. Like, for example, Sarek before Star Trek 3 or Khan before Star Trek 2 or the concept of the slingshotting around the sun before Star Trek 4. And now we've moved into Star Trek The Next Generation. And Star Trek The Next Generation is a little different from the original series in that um, the movies are not usually considered the highlights or some of the best examples of Star Trek in the same way the original series was. The show usually is. And especially these first two movies take a lot more from the series itself. And in general, even though the series was in no way a serialized television or even close to it, it did have a continuity. And sometimes to kind of get what's going on in one part of the continuity... Like, is First Contact as effective if you don't know the history of Picard and the Borg? Probably. <laughs> but it uh, it is helpful to have that context because those are kick-ass episodes. Um, and so with Star Trek Next Generation, we, as you heard, if you listened to the last two episodes, if you didn't, you should. We actually did, uh, instead of uh, prepping with three or four Star Trek episodes like we did with the original series, we prepped Peter with... Uh, the the original pilot Encounter at Farpoint, uh, a smattering of episodes to get him used to some generally considered high points of the series, like Yesterday's Enterprise and Measure of a Man, and took him through two important arcs that will um, manifest themselves in um, in the next two movies we're going to watch. One is the Klingon Civil War arc from the Next Generation. And the Borg arc, or par- partial Borg arc from um, from Next Generation, Q who, uh, best of both worlds, family. We left Iborg and Descent on the table for now, and we'll talk about actually why in this episode. So now here we are, Peter. After after watching thirteen episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation, and then watching two more that we're going to discuss in this episode, which are Data Lore and Brothers, and kind of introduce the concept of. Uh, data being emotionless a little bit more clearly, as well as the concept of an emotion chip that can change uh, change the way data acts, uh, which we're going to see uh, heavily featured in Star Trek Generations. 
uh, we finally come to a movie. So, so you've had 15 out of 178 episodes of Star Trek Next Generation. And yes, I do know that off the top of my head. We've hit, we watched 15 of them. Still have a lot of my favorites in reserve for later on. Uh, and now we're at the first movie. Peter, where are you at right now when it comes to how you're feeling about Star Trek as a whole? Uh, very different than my immediate uh, expectation, which is that I quite enjoyed uh, getting to say goodbye to Kirk, whereas I thought I was very much done with that. I, th- I thought I was, I had said goodbye maybe seven times previously, so uh, um, <laughs> I, I was actually, like, somewhat touched by that arc. I'm still very much enjoying the show, and, like, if it wasn't uh, against our Prime Directive, would be diving into the show more. Um, I do understand that like season one stuff is a little rougher than some of the later stuff. Um, I, I think I agree with your sort of analysis there, just from what I've seen. Um, and two, I'm still, let's and be I'm, very clear. Two I'm is having, also rough. I, I'm having fun. I'm having Good. a lot of fun. I will say something that's funny, though. Uh, I don't know if it's funny, but I'll say something that made me laugh. Um, is that Star Trek Generations, the movie, the big, glossy, respectable. This is this is Star Trek getting out of... Uh, Star Trek getting out of that uh, that the TV uh, ghetto and you know getting out on a, the the silver screen for all to see felt so much more dorky than anything on the show. <laughs> Interesting. Like, it's so much more self-important and and more earnest and and sent and sentimental as well in a way that like the show has a sort of like a humility. In its in its size, mm-hmm. uh, the, you, some of that is age, right? Like the fact that its budget shows, and the fact that it stretches its budget in the original show, yeah, uh, in a way that like feels very like um, humbling to me, and and, and sort of uh, sweet. Uh, the movie feels like it's um, shooting above its weight class a little bit, and I like the movie. Don't get me wrong, but this is the first movie where I've been like. I wasn't able quite to box it in as, oh, this is just, you know, when people go into the theater, they expect to see uh, a big spectacle thing that can keep up with other spectacles. They could, a Star Trek movie that can keep up with Star Wars and Star Wars ripoffs or whatever. They can keep up with yeah. Indiana Jones. Uh, this was the first, uh, but usually Star Trek doesn't, even the the, the really good movies, uh, apart from Wrath of Khan and and motion picture so far, I should say, uh, I don't think the movies have, have particularly held up to that. And I've just said, you know, I'm watching this mixed in with the show. I'm just going to pretend these are special episodes of the show. Like, tune in for our two-part Friday-Saturday special on NBC to watch uh, Star Trek IV. <laughs> um, yeah, and but, you've heard me say that a little bit. Yeah, but the, this movie is the first one I haven't been able to compartmentalize. Generations is the first movie I haven't been able to compartmentalize as sort of a neat, like, uh, hey, this is just a special episode of the show. This feels like uh, a big, audacious, audacious stab in the way the first movie felt, but the first movie felt like uh, a um, it actually could keep up with some of the big sci-fi pictures of its day, like a Planet of the Apes or whatever, or of 2001. Yeah. Um, I don't think Star Trek Generations really keeps up with the other sci-fi movies of its era. No. Uh, although 94. Yeah, I guess the 90s were not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I, think I, I, uh, I think it probably has a less, uh, or even just having trying to find a sci-fi movie as someone who was a, a big sci-fi uh, fan. That's what it come out when I was eleven because I was in sixth grade because I went yeah. with some with some uh, friends 
uh, to it for the th- the third time I saw it. But I, I feel like sci-fi stuff is similar to being specifically a zombie movie fan, where like the the art the. Uh, the um the mythology and the the, to- the let's say the totems and the yep. iconography of the genre uh can be so exploited and abused by bad filmmakers that it can often exhaust you and that like a lot of being a fan of either zombie movies or in general just like space exploration movies means digging through piles of garbage to find the silent running or the you know the the like yeah. one really awesome uh, sci-fi thing that you haven't seen like i watched so many shows yeah. that i wished were the expanse until i found the expanse yeah i definitely know that feeling as a as a sci-fi fan it's even harder to find uh than horror than uh, finding good like horror genre entries just because sci-fi to really work not all the time but a good chunk of the time requires a good budget or a reasonable budget or a letter a level of competence with special effects that uh, horror genre, the horror genre doesn't necessarily need. Um, so even though you can have some amazing low budget sci-fi movies like a primer, like once you start talking about space, like the budget's going to start going up and that can mean a lot of studio interference and it kind of being off limits to indie filmmakers or people with low budgets or just, you know, a lot of, there's, there's a lot of incompetent sci-fi <laughs> movies. You're, you're 100% right. But this, let's, let's talk about this movie as it relates to the, the motion picture. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the two episodes we watch and we'll get into the movie in more details. Cause you're right. It is a, these movies are so starkly at odds with each other in what, why they exist and what they were trying to do. So Star Trek, the motion picture comes out in 1979. It is more than 10 years since the original series goes off the air. The original series gets canceled after three seasons because ratings were bad. In that time frame, it then kind of becomes a, they start doing Star Trek conventions. Um, and all of a sudden the reruns are generating huge numbers that they're showing in syndication. And people start going, oh shit, were we wrong to cancel this? Was the fan base bigger than we thought? And I remember reading something at some point uh, that basically said that they, the way that Nielsen worked back then, they didn't didn't count like 18 to 34 year olds or something as like a a good, maybe it was like 18 to 25 year olds, something like that, which is now like one of the most prized demographics. But back then, teenagers... (laughs) Uh, you know, was whatever. that because Get they didn't the... think they could own their own TV when the know. time came? Go to know. Vietnam. Um, that's <laughs> what they were saying. But uh, I think I mean, it was I guess something like, like you're thinking like they don't have money, but like now we've realized the 18 to 25 year olds only have disposable. Have the income. most disposable. And maybe that's not it. So I apologize if I'm getting the, the story a little bit mixed up. But essentially, like when you factored in X, it was the number one show of its night. And it got canceled. So the fan base was was bigger. It was also like nothing else that was on television. And kind of and when it was canceled and then the reruns took off and the conventions are doing well, Paramount's like, how do we capitalize on this? So they produced one season of an animated uh, series with all the original cast coming back to voice their characters. The animation is terrible. Uh, it lasts a season. They uh, start talking about what uh, was called Star Trek Two, Star Trek Phase Two, which we talked a little bit about one of these Star Trek Gener- uh, Next Generation intro episodes, which is maybe we just do another series. That ultimately gets scrapped. The pilot, the two-hour pilot, gets turned into Star Trek: The Motion Picture. That 
budget and that movie gets greenlit because of the success of Star Wars. So in Star Trek The Motion Picture, you're essentially seeing what is supposed to be a reintroduction to everyone, uh, including new characters that they end up essentially killing or becoming space gods in the movie because they weren't going to go do this the series anymore. Um, and you have an amazing... Uh, you have an amazing budget to work with. You have an amazing special effects person to work with, and you have something to prove. You, you are now past sixties television. The concept of a, a TV show graduating to this huge movie was 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 kind of unheard of at the time. Um, and you have some something that has its own idi- uh, idiosyncratic vision, and with something to prove that really has a lot of space between it and its predecessor. Star Trek Generations, you have a totally different scenario, which is, I think they shot most of this on the break between season six and season seven. You have a show that is becoming hugely, hugely popular, but too expensive to produce. And it's also getting long in the tooth with seven seasons and they realize they have to end it. Um, But they're also like, like every season is getting better ratings. I think, um, the finale of Star Trek The Next Generation took in something like 30 million viewers, which is insane for a syndicated television show. That's just um, insane in general that 30 million people watched something. The finale, yeah. I mean, now it's... I mean, you remember, like, Seinfeld, 110 million or whatever fucking was. Watch it. But, like, 30 million for a syndicated finale is is huge. And the ratings kept getting better. There's all, you know, there's all this stuff that's getting made that, that that's kind of becoming a cash cow they you know next generation becomes so successful they launch another star trek series in the middle of star trek the next generation the middle uh, in the beginning of season six they launch star trek deep space nine um so it's kind of like a we know the show's done the actors are kind of done doing it uh kirk's done that we're not getting movies from them let's do a movie so the finale of star trek airs in june of 1994 this movie comes out in November of 1994. There is not much separation between the end of this show um, and the movie. And it is literally, like I said, produced and written and made in between the uh, penultim- penultimate and the uh, final season. So you just are – this one definitely feels like two things to me. It feels like the most – like Star Trek, like like an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, super size, a lot more stakes, bigger budget, better lighting, you know, uh, some great guest actors. But ultimately, it is being written and made by the same people that are working on the show, starring the same people working on the show with a cast that is doing what's on the show. Um, and it shows you, it shows you how much they could do with the budget though because like there's parts in this that look cheap and shitty like tv and there's parts of this that look the special effects in this movie are amazing oh yeah it has one of my favorite like shots of all time where soren is watch that's really good i love that you Um, can see dirt kicking up around it i know i've never seen i've never seen anything like that but i was just trying to guess sorry go on no it's it's just a shot where uh soren is um shadowed by the nexus coming and he's standing on that uh the bridge right before it comes and like absorbs them for the first time and it's just this insane pink lightning storm and he's silhouetted against it with his arms raised 
Oh yeah, I think the the, the Nexus wave in general looks amazing. Yeah. Um. It, it, this is that is the one thing that I will say feels like it. Um. It really earns the big screen approach. Like I would have loved to have seen the Enterprise saucer crash in in a theater. Um, yeah, it was amazing. And, I mean, blew my mind. Right. Yeah. Like, I uh, so you saw this in theaters three times. Yeah. I mean, I was so. I mean, all I I mentioned like the finale. All good things is like was a huge event in my house, and then like it was about the seventh season that I really started to get obsessed, and then they immediately st- it was such a big ratings hit they started to basically just start replaying the series um first uh every saturday and then eventually like monday through friday at like 9 p.m on one of like abc affiliate that i had they showed next generation so it was actually moving through the series at a big clip so i'm like watching all these episodes that i can and yeah so by the time this movie comes out i am like peaking when it comes to my uh like fervor of star trek the next generation love specifically in star trek love like so yeah was just could not have been more excited like and they talked i remember i watched a special before the finale ended where they showed a sneak peek at the movie coming out like which again now feels so commonplace in 1994 it was like oh shit they ended this show in a movie's like it just wasn't a thing really that happened yeah um you know, shows when they ended, television shows when they ended, didn't like there wasn't a Cheers movie, like you know, <laughs> like so this felt so uh, amazing that I still get to see them do this in the in these movies. So it is funny the way that the the producers thought about it, right? Like they thought big, but I think because you have all these same writers that are really and and a director who had just directed some episodes of Star Trek Generations and this uh, Star Trek Next Generation and this is not a criticism of the movie. I actually really I, this this might be my favorite of the Next Generation movies. Although First Contact is much more like big cinematic. I'm interested to hear what you think about that, Peter. But we'll get there next time. Um, uh, I think you nothing see, about it as of right now. Well, good, because that would mean that if, if you thought something about it, it means you would have seen it. That this is, this not is, this is allowed. A this, yeah, that was a test. And you passed, Peter. I'm very proud of you. Um, My but brain no, is completely uh, empty. Re- reward me, Daddy. <laughs> um, they talk about the way they were thinking. So um, they had wanted to destroy the Enterprise for a long time. Oh, me too, man. Especially once I found out it was in two pieces. Like, oh, my God, I want to I see one blow up one way and one blow up another way. And the original finale for the season six to season seven was the Enterprise getting destroyed and uh, having a their final season with them spread in different areas with the finale of them getting a new new Enterprise. Uh, everyone that mattered rejected that idea, but scripts were written and stuff like that. Um, so they were like, really like, let's blow this fucker up, which is actually what uh, the producers of Star Trek three and the people that were in charge of writing that were like, let's let's blow this ship up. Like, yeah, I guess if you were, work these in these writers were the, the jocks of the of the Star Trek world, they, they wanted to come in and take that model and just fucking football spike it into the end zone. I think uh, maybe it's just because like when you work on it, like we're so if you work on a show for that long, you feel so confined by the ship that you ultimately want to just like, I got an idea for a plot that involves blowing it up. Can I blow it up? Yeah. And- did they, do they, do you think that like in a literal sense, like sailors, when they get at the end of their journey, they have to like stop the crew from like, I don't know. Burning the ship. To the burning crew. the ship down. Like, 
Huh, well, got all my bags yeah. packed. Just gonna leave this Molotov cocktail in my bathroom. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, it's on fire. Everything's on fire. Yeah, I mean, I would never presuppose to guess how sailors think, but um, I have to assume that's in their wheelhouse. Yeah. And if you did, don't sailors explain to me. They like to go north, Peter. It's why they call it the North Star. Huh. That's the way sailors like to go. <laughs> they've got they've got all these other instruments, and all they are they're there to do is uh, remind them uh, that they have no idea how this this shit works. Just look at the North Star, baby. I'm picturing uh, I'm picturing sailors from about 200 years ago. So when you say instruments, uh, I am picturing that they brought a band aboard. So I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they look at their tuba player and they're like, which way to go, asshole? Hey, viola he player. <laughs> we get it. You know Bach. But do you know how to get Bach to where we need to go? <laughs> <laughs> uh, tuba player's like North Star. Anyways, what the fuck was they talking about? Uh, um, I don't know. Oh, so they wanted to destroy the shit out of the ship. They wanted to destroy the ship. Destroy the ship out of the ship. Yeah, they just like, you know, and actually, we haven't got to those episodes, Peter, but there's a lot of episodes where the ship faux blows up. Um, like, not a ton, but maybe like three or four. And that was just them releasing the valve a little bit. It is, yeah. There's a, there's a great time loop episode, which we, we have to talk about at some point, where the time loop uh, resets every time the ship blows up. Um, <laughs> and So you just see it blow up like ten times throughout the show. Anyways, but you see the way they thought in like, they weren't necessarily thinking... Truly cinematically, again, same writers that have worked on the show now pretty consistently for five five years, six years, and they're also writing the movie. Like, it is all the same people that are, they took, you know, they take a break from writing the show, they went to go write the movie. And they were, even in interviews and stuff like that, they'll say, we were thinking about, like, how we could expand the budget, knowing that we were going to have more money than a typical episode. But... They also said, in retrospect, we were thinking about, like, what couldn't we, what did we want to do on the show that we weren't allowed to do for budgetary reasons that now we can do on Star Trek? So one of those things that they had, con- that um, that basically it was Gene Roddenberry who was against was he was adamantly against anything with the original series, which we talked about originally uh, or we talked about, I think, in one of the last weeks. So they, but they had always wanted to do shows with let's bring um, characters back, let's figure out ways to get, you know, they're they're Star Trek, like you know. Now it feels like that would be, you know, episode three they meet Kirk because we need a little juice. Like even the new Star Trek Discovery show, Sarek is on the first few episodes. Like they, you it's know, it's also crazy to me because like it feels like Roddenberry would be like. Uh, you know, a guy in his, his autumnal years, um, uh, he would want to maybe reconnect with his past in a sense, but um, it's because of like the whole him, rejected like, thing that we talked about. Like, yeah. he had basically been booted off of the original series. He was like very in charge of Next Generation, and his thing was like, I this doesn't. I am not drifting off my coattails in the success of Star Trek. Like, I can make another good next generation without being like, remember Kirk and Spock and all your friends? Um, and it's actually I'm also after- with him. Like, I, I, as much as I like, as much as I, I like all these movies, pretty much. Uh, this is the first one where I've been like, you know, I feel like we said goodbye. I feel like we got that done. Uh, do you think maybe we can, you know, move, move on like completely? 
Yeah, um, which they which they do. I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, like having Doc come back as a as a space racist who's a thousand years old. Like that's funny to me, but having an actual goodbye movie for Kirk is too much. Yeah, we'll 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 get there. I may have some yeah, differing yeah. views on that, but um, I think we'll land in the middle because I'm I'm a mixed opinion on it. But the idea of bringing him back for this movie in general, I'm apprehensive to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, go but on. But I guess I get like the writers are like, why can't like it wasn't just we can't bring back our friends, which there is a you know a seventy eight year time difference or whatever. But it was also like they couldn't even go to planets mentioned. Like they had to fight to to reference Romulans and Klingons. Like he really was like. Um, I'm surprised. I mean, he was fine calling it the Enterprise and Starfleet, but he's like, nothing, nothing connecting the two. And they eventually won some battles. And then once Roddenberry dies, we'll actually talk about this later. There actually becomes a lot more of like Spock being in Star Trek The Next Generation. And then the other way they thought about it when they're like, what can we do we haven't been able to do is like some things that are cool, but like feel like a weird thing to spend your money on. So, for example, they're using all the same sets from Star Trek The Next Generation. They had had this idea of this stellar cartography set where they go in, you know, it's this massive screen and they can map out coordinates and solve mysteries that way. And they couldn't get the budget whenever they planned to do it to build a new set in whatever episode they wanted to use it. So, you know, now they're making it. These guys are writing a movie and, um, and they're like, oh, shit, you know, that stellar cartography thing. We can do that. And even though I fucking love the scene in the movie, that's the way they were thinking. They they weren't necessarily thinking, how do we make a movie in the same way that motion picture is now two years, you know, 10 years removed? They were like, what would be a good two hour episode of the show with a budget that exceeds anything that we've ever done? And. Some ideas that have been rejected either for budgetary concerns or because of Gene Roddenberry being a lunatic or just the fact that, like, we can't get William Shatner to come and be on a syndicated television show. Um, and so that's kind of the way that they are thinking cinematically when it comes can to I, Star Trek Generations. Can I can I interject yeah, real quickly? That, like that's, I, that was actually the end of my sentence. So, and thought. I... I think Kirk coming back for a cameo would be way more charming in the context of the show where they just have an episode where he's like kind of reminiscing about the past, trying to stay out of Picard's way, like the opening, but instead of uh, Cameron from uh, Ferris Bueller, what's his name? He's a good actor. It's Cameron from Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Cameron from Ferris Bueller. Instead of him. I I think of him as the sleazy rapist on Spin City. (laughs) (laughs) I think of him as the sleazy billionaire fail son on Succession. Um, Oh, yeah. Anyways, uh, Alan I think Ruck, her coming in and instead of Alan Ruck sort of, uh, you know, him him sort of sparring over like Kirk trying to stay out of the way because he's in an ornamental role. Like the first like 20 or 30 minutes of the movie, whatever it takes for that little intro section. Yeah. Um, instead of that being about Alan Ruck, like him and Picard sort of like trying not to spar because there's cameras there, but ending up sparring like that could have been an all time incredible episode. Um, but instead we get this, which I... But, that, I but, but you have to understand that makes no fucking sense because they're 78 years. Yeah, but if he's going to come back at all, like, maybe they figure out a fucking time warp boot. None of it makes sense until you realize... 
None of I, it makes I, sense. I, I understand what a ridiculous thing that's saying, but just the idea the that idea like, that t- Shatner's idea yelling that... at Picard is, is well that that would never work because they don't live in the same era. Well, anyways, there's a movie called Star Trek Generations where Picard meets Kirk. <laughs> he, he falls into a fantasy ribbon. <laughs> um, my point is just that like they could have come up with a way for them to to interact and just the mechanics of the opening would be enough to make a great star trek episode um because them not actually being competitive but both of them just so strongly needing to to take command um would be like a a a great episode and this though i do i do think they set up kirk's death wonderfully and they kind of botched the execution of how his death happens it's the concept of it that I dislike more than um, how it actually manipulates. I, I quite like Kirk's character in this movie. I think it's it's a charming presence. I like that he gets to go on one last big adventure that basically frames out the movie. It feels very late in the game to have it happen now as opposed to right after the last movie. Um, yeah you get it like but, that that yeah. ended up being there like i mentioned they were thinking in small terms for how to make a big movie and their one big hook is we're gonna get shatner and Picard in the same movie like and that that was their hook and it's a hook that sold the poster right there's a great like image of the starfleet insignia insignia um with like each of their half faces on one side of it and it was like you know it felt uh epochal like from a from a fan perspective like you know you you had run into these uh, next generation or star trek original series episodes on next generation occasionally but it's basically like oh vulcans live for 400 years or deforest kelly's about to die like (laughs) you know like he just happened to live 138 years so that's why he gets a chance but like the idea of you know at least you know two shatner and picard they're essentially the same age um and they're sparring against each other and um or like working together to solve something that feels like a hook to sell a movie on now when you actually watch the movie the ambitions are a little bit less i think major than that which was a criticism at the time but that's a hook to sell a movie what's interesting as we get through the next movies i think star trek first contact is the one that that actually the only one that thought hey we're making a star trek next generation movie we don't need to think what would be expensive for for a two-hour episode of the television show or what would be a big idea for the television show. We can think as huge as we want and go back from there. Um, and, and so the contact ha- is is the fans are into first contact. Yes. Um, I think it still has somewhat of a mixed reputation, and we'll talk about that next time uh, because of what they, they do to – so this is the only Star Trek The Next Generation movie. Where all the characters on the show feel, or sorry, all the characters in the movie feel like the characters from the show. It's the next three that decide, it's the next three that decide, like, it's completely the Picard and Data show. Everyone else is a secondary character. Data is uh, either the one who's at risk of death or betraying the crew. And Picard is John McClane, action hero, punch first, ask questions later. So even though First Contact, I think, is the best, like, we made a we made a fucking Star Trek movie. It is like it's huge. There's time travel. There's the Borg. There's Earth is at risk. Like all this shit. 
it's still it goes into these tropes of like Data and Picard that then they try to repeat for the next two movies. And the next two movies have no big ideas. Like, like Generations has the Picard and Kirk. First Contact has stakes. Earth is at risk. The Borg are here. Like, you know, like big time (laughs) this time. Uh, The battle's not going to happen off screen (laughs) and have one old uh, incompetent admiral be like, oh shit! (laughs) No! Um... No, like, we're going to do it. And then it is weird the way the ambitions behind the next two movies just are like, I don't know. Um, how about if we do a bad episode of the show for number nine? And then they, with Picard being a person who just has got a fuck and wants to settle down. And uh, uh, and then with ten, they're like, oh, shit, we really fucked up. Let's get a guy who hates Star Trek and remake Wrath of Khan. <laughs> uh, it's... <laughs> It's bad. Like it's the next two are pretty bad, but it's it's so weird. Like they never they figure out the original series movies pretty quickly, and um and they just never really figure figure out generations movies. So, but at least the first two had a big movie concept, even if they were executed in they they both are not like there's not a perfect next generation movie, but. I want to get to the episodes. I do want to say to kind of set up some things you said. I'm I'm very interested to, to very interested in your thoughts on this movie for a couple of reasons, and we'll get into that in a second. Which you've already kind of alluded to is that so this movie was mediocrely received when it came released by both critics, which gets a little little interesting because a movie like this is I don't want to say like something as annoying as for the fans, but like it is people complain this is such an insular Star Trek movie. Like this it is, is for pe- it is. I think that's why, partially, why it feels so dorky to me. And I don't mean mm-hmm. that as totally an insult, but I, I, I mean it's, it's, it, it's way dorkier than like cheapo masks and cheapo cling Klingon makeup. Yeah, like, it's way dorkier to be like, what if your two favorite captains got to get together? <laughs> like, yeah, uh, and okay. it, it's like you, it, and because they're leaning on stuff for the show which is one of the reasons we watch so many episodes peter even if like like sure i showed you some like sins of the father and redemption are good shows the episodes like you don't necessarily need to know that to know who lurson and Beatar, Beatar are but like it th- these this movie leans heavily on like hope you know all these people because we're not introducing them <laughs> like um we're gonna eat, give them good moments but like you don't get a howdy you don't get anything like we're gonna kill. <laughs> we're gonna kill Picard's nephew and brother. Hope you know who those people are. Hope yeah. you watched that one episode. Like, and, um, and that moment had impact because of Patrick fam. Stewart, not because I had seen the episodes previously. <laughs> well, you did. That's also so. That was the other reason I, mean, I why had I seen the episodes should... previously. But I'm saying not because of that. It's because, oh yeah. It's because Patrick such Stewart. A... God, he he kills it. I he actually do it. think watching Family so close to Generations, which we did, um, had a this is the time that had the most impact for me because Family's such a goddamn good episode. So, good. and then when and then like having him reckon with that, also the idea of mortality, like it, it's anyways, we'll, we'll get there. So, anyways, so so critics that weren't Star Trek fans were kind of like, what the fuck is this? Like, you made a movie that is for Star Trek fans only. And then some of them said, though, like, they liked Malcolm McDowell, they liked the Stuart Kirk scenes, like, you know, it, it wasn't like, no, I don't think anyone gave this, like, a, here's a half a star, it was like, 
you know, somewhere between two and four out of five, depending on where you fell as a critic. Star Trek fans have a very mixed um, uh, feeling about this movie. The criticisms that I have, too, are pretty standard. But the the one thing that is pretty consistent is this is the – in retrospect, is this is the only Next Generation movie where the characters get to be the characters that we loved in seven seasons. They You'll notice this immediately. Like, there's a change. <laughs> there's a change of focus. There's a change in characterization after this. So – I think it has a mixed representation. Looking at um, Letterboxd and um, people that have rated this movie that we – either critics that we both like or people that we know through the Dissolve Facebook group, it seems like I am definitely the highest – rate. like I am the highest rating. I'm the only one that rated it four and a half out of five stars. I think there's two people that rated it four stars and the, the rest are somewhere between two and three and a half. So that's kind of where it's um, – its legacy lies. I, 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 again, I think I would say that this is secretly the best Star Trek The Next Generation movie. It has so much stuff I really love. Um, but I, I haven't watched First Contact in a long time, too. So I know it's going to be one of those two. I know it's not going to be Insurrection or Nemesis. But uh, interesting to see where you fall on these as well, just because um, you're just watching this from a totally different perspective of a you know a 29 year old who's watching this stuff pretty quick in quick succession for the first time as opposed to me a nerdy 11 year old who found his first thing that he was going to be obsessed with a super cool one too uh by the way uh uh was like fawning over this movie so there's definitely a part of me that i can say with some without reservation peter that I'm not going to be able to give this like a fair assessment. Like there's parts of this movie I love and I laugh at and these moments that are just so a part of like my Star Trek fandom that I can recognize that like I can recognize that unless you have that exact experience, um, I may be wrong. And clearly based on where the critical consensus or even current letterbox review consensus, I am on the high end of the spectrum. Uh yeah, I, I I this is strictly middle brow Star Trek for me. I haven't seen um middle of the road Star Trek for me. I haven't seen uh you know during this run anything that I would consider like low tier except for maybe um was it la- the last one six was it what's the one six with the- is so good. What are you talking about? Which one am I talking about? Five oh, final fr- yeah final frontier the Shatner where he yells at God. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That one, and even that one I find kind of interesting, but it feels like it's retreading territory. Is that the one where he goes to Space Jail? Uh, no, Space Jail is six, the one we yeah. did with Bill. Yeah, you know, I, I'm kind of, I, I I would say this one and that one are probably on an equal kind of plane. Like, they're, they're compromised films for me. Like, I'm not totally attached to them, but they're still, it's fun to have more Star Trek adventures. It's fun to see Star Trek on, on this scale. Um, this is definitely a more professional looking film than either of them. Like, the, the effects are great. And there's some some really touching sort of moments. A lot of those moments are cashing in on previous episodes that I like. And the fact that I already like these characters. Like, if I came into this movie blind, I would have probably disliked it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it almost feels like, like, what would you... Not that we can repeat this experiment. Like, what would you have felt about this movie if you had seen 178 episodes? Like, over... Like, it... Because it really is just like... Uh, aiming dead set on like you know every single thing about all these people right because yeah not. and and the way it kind of sidelines characters i love in favor of like you know uh, arguably a plot that's kind of undercooked 
Like there's there's kind of it's it's a beast pulled in too many directions. The film sort of yeah. feels drawn and quartered. But what yep. is there? What is there? Uh, I do find I do find entertaining. Um, we will get to all the bits and pieces that do and don't work with me though after. Um, but yeah, but we can get to that after we talk about a couple episodes of the show you made me watch. Um, so the, these episodes. So here's why. I, here's why directly. I made you watch them. Yeah. yeah, these episodes set up directly some key character plot points that would be fucking gobbledygook if it wasn't for like data just being like going up to a cabinet and like oh here's my personality chip like that would have been that's that's fucking horrific like there's that would have been awful if it wasn't you know set up in a very good star trek episode well and actually i actually left like i almost messaged you like hey when you're done watching brothers i'll tell you how he actually gets it, right? Because Brothers ends with Lore escaping with the chip that wasn't meant for him, and I'm sure I'm sure you could like intuit that, like, oh, at some point in the episode, I didn't see he got it. But part of the so part of the reason I didn't show that is that there is a it would make you watch three more episodes. Not that that's a bad thing, but it's it actually converges with the Borg arc weirdly. So that I'll tell you this, and maybe we'll watch him at some point. It's not like spoilers, but. There's an episode of Star Trek Next Generation where they find a lone Borg, and they give him a name and teach him to be an individual. That Borg then goes off and, like, not not changes the collective as a whole, but, like, eventually, like, almost establishes his own offshoot, like, Borg thing. Like, we can be individuals. And ultimately, they then look for a leader. (laughs) Still, though, because they're Borg and they're just not good at being individuals and what the initial Borg had taught them, and uh, they find Lore as the leader. Interesting. And, and, um, and through that, uh, which has actually ended up being the two-part of season six to season seven, as opposed to that thing where the Enterprise blows up and they all get spread across the the galaxy doing new jobs. Through that, they end in, the, um, in defeating Lore, uh, Data takes the emotion chip, mentions that it, it seems to be damaged and also he's just not ready because lore manipulates data by feeding him emotions directly from the chip for the first time might be worth going back at some at some point um they're they're interesting episodes especially with the way that picard reacts to it not necess- not critical for either arc and because it was three episodes and because it had a weird intersection of the other thing we needed to talk about i figured we'd leave it on the table and i could just say hey he meets lore one more time and he gets the emotion chip but at least you know what it is what it meant so it wasn't as confusing yeah yeah i I intuited from the um from the the sort of space uh that it didn't matter um that uh that that, you know he somehow got the chip i don't know if he uh pulled it out of laura's head with a fucking power drill or uh, it was given (laughs) willingly or his boss made a second or his dad made a second one i i I, you know i I at least intuited that there was a there was a a resolving there was now a path we know the thing and here's the and they're they're clearly those two points connected so i can intuit there was a line drawn between the emotion trip chip and data owning it but but the point is that i understood the importance of the chip how it would affect him i could see it affecting um a similar being um and 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 ultimately yeah i mean i probably didn't need to watch that episode just to connect the two it sounds like because it sounds like they were just playing they were adding uh color and adding uh, you know uh, a bit more contrast with 
what lore actually was and what the the um, Borg actually are, as opposed to because I, I don't I don't think Star Trek likes making any character pure evil anymore. Yeah, um, which is good. Um, it it mm-hmm. makes it it makes it more interesting. Like Star Wars never went back and and had like a Mandalorian episode where you got to see like uh, one of the huts being uh super chill and cool and like not uh, a grimy space slug <laughs> um like we we had java and uh that's kind of the only representation of that species we needed um in this there the star trek's more like well not all the borg are bad which is like in some way um it feels like it, it, it's liberal roots are sort of showing, or at least it's 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 more humanist roots are showing. Yeah, like and every might... species has a bit of gray to it. Well, and also like this is a species where they're literally forcing people to become Borg, right? And like wiping, you know. So, like, what does that mean? So, um, when you disconnect them from the the collective. So, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that actually has an interesting way with the way that Picard approaches running into a Borg again. So, uh, I'm going to cross off a, an episode that we were going to have just to show Picard as an action star, which we could do whenever. And I think we're going to watch it, not this, not the lore two-parter that follows up from that, but uh, I, Borg, as our episode before First Contact, which I think makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, you, Peter, you will be talking more about what, what how that all works. Uh, soon but yeah so i don't know if these episodes are like as as a as a young star trek fan the idea of a recurring villain even one that only reoccurs three times uh that was like an evil data was super cool i loved it now watching data lore is very funny to me besides i do like seeing cute uh cute riker with his without his beard uh baby face riker is nice but like it isn't a whole episode you realize as uh that like became like ruthlessly mocked on Adult Swim type shows. Like, oh hey, I wonder if this twin is an evil twin. Because <laughs> why does only Wesley realize this guy who might as well be going? Yes, Ooh, uh, my plan is work. Oh wait, yeah. Did you just say your plan is working? Pro- I mean, our plan. Ha <laughs> uh, like, uh-huh, Our plan to be friends is to be best right. friends. It's <laughs> working perfect. Like it is. Like, it is. It is like one of those moments where I was like, wait, they were doing evil twin shit on like. I feel like the Brady Bunch. Like this feels like old school TV, which makes sense. Like it's the, it's the tenth episode of. But the Next plot Generation. doesn't. An evil twin doesn't work if nobody falls for it. There's no point in having an evil twin if nobody falls for it. And that's one of the reasons why people... We talked a little bit about why people hate Wesley. The best part about Data Lore is everyone telling him to shut up. Shut up, um, Wesley! And then, yeah, then, then, and then his mom... <laughs> you don't tell my son to shut up! And he's like, yeah, but he's evil! He's like, he's you like, shut up! Take your little bitch boy to his room! I know. It's so, <laughs> it's so like weird. Like as you you've you've seen enough later to be like it's a Picard wow, what a, quote exactly. This isn't me being being offensive. It's an exact Picard it. quote. Yeah, um, but you can see why like Wesley really started off on the wrong foot. Not because it's like hey, let's have a super smart kid, uh, which is hilariously parodied in Galaxy Quest. Um, but it also is like they the reason they make the kid interact with the crew of the fucking flagship is that he's the super genius so you have all these early shows it's not just this one peter where picard riker all these super competent people are huge dummies and wesley's the one who's like 
yeah, this is very obvious. This person's an evil twin. So it wasn't just that Wesley was annoying. It was that they had to make to to even have a reason to have him on the show. They needed to make him uh, uh, smarter than the crew. And 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 that was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. This is the worst. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I what was I, I? I you know I admit I I like short round. We've talked about this before. I like a yeah. lot of the sort of like kid kid friends i saw a very funny and very heartfelt sort of pitch on twitter recently that the next Indiana jones movie should be them passing off the baton or the the whip to uh to short round yeah um it'd be kind of a cool way for the the series to try and redeem its racist past um this with wesley it's uh uh i i've only seen episodes where wesley has been annoying and then the only episode or it fades into the background like or right. becomes, yeah, furniture. And He's I'm just like, a pilot. He's an extra that was speaking lines they don't have to pay. But it's funny because I see like an alien species with like a big horn in its head and like talks with a lisp and like, uh, you know, uh, uh, growls and drools on the ground. And I'm like, what? what's their internal life like? But I see a 15 year old boy and I'm like, throw him into a space volcano. Nobody cares, Wesley. Go home. He's masturbating all over your ship. <laughs> you know it. You know he's he's got a holodeck. He's <laughs> masturbating so hard. Um, Stop jerking off, Wesley. It is great that in the in the third season, mind you, there is an episode where they realize so people would probably be like jerking off like crazy in the holodeck, right? And they basically make an episode about that without it being jerking off. Okay, but here's the thing. Like when I was in junior high i was in a class of 35 kids i dated and by that i meant i kissed one girl in the class and then none of the other girls were interested in me i had exhausted the pool <laughs> what that would so happen you, you, on, that would happen on that's a, a, hold on hold on hold on do you think that is a good uh statistician percentage for like um in general the amount of uh uh, girls in any given group that finds you desirable? No, like, no, 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 like, no. Like three, less than 3%, isn't one out of 35? <laughs> no, no. The point what do you is, think, okay, well, since you said no, you had, what do you the think the percentage is, is? I had to reboot my, my, like, interest in girls, like, two years later when I became a freshman and joined a class of, like, 400 or whatever. Um... And like I had to, I had to like restart the cycle. On the Enterprise, barring a stray space alien, if you are respecting people's space and taking no for an answer, you're eventually going to exhaust the pool. <laughs> and some people need to jerk off in the hollow deck. Look, I, I get it, especially if you're having like this character Barkley has some anxiety issues. He doesn't know how to talk to people. Doesn't know how to approach to people. So yeah, he's gonna jerk off in the hollow deck. And also, here's what I would say. If you're the counselor of that person, hypothetically, don't walk into the holodeck where someone's using it. You might see some shit like yourself in like a sexy gown that that throws you up. But that's a holodeck. You can't. It's, you can't get mad at people for what they're doing in the holodeck. You should knock first. You gotta knock before you enter the holodeck. 
<laughs> this is a real episode. Also, speaking of real episodes, you know, you you said you want to do a bad trick. I don't even know if it's a bad show or not, but it would definitely give us a lot to talk about. There is a Wesley episode where he comes back from vacation I, with I shit you not. This is not a joke, Peter. With a video game that gives people orgasms, um, and people at, as he shows it around to the crew, everyone gets addicted because it's a video game that just makes you come constantly. <laughs> um. And so the crew stops functioning because they're all playing the cum video game all day. That would happen. This is a realistic documentary slice of life cinema verite. Um, can we do? Can we do a? Sh- can we? Can, after we do the shitty movies or whatever, wh- whenever we get to that point, can we do like a Star Trek shit posting series on TNG? Oh. That's just like the most comically. No, we gotta do episodes. the original series too because we gotta do the one where they land on the hippie planet that just plays groovy music. And I guess it's against the Vietnam War. There's Fine, a, there's we'll do a two lot. shit posting episodes. We'll do. Uh, We're gonna do uh, some shit posting stuff. We can do that. I I also want to you know delve in other series. Um. So like we should we should just I'm saying pace yourself, and find a good opportunity for us to you know sneak in a shit posting deck so that I can at least be familiar with with the memes. Like I haven't even seen Picard shoot a Tommy gun yet. Oh well. Great news! First contacts next week. Whew. Finally, um, I actually really like Brothers. I like it because, like, so Brett Spiner is obviously playing Lore. <laughs> Didn't know if you knew that, Peter. What he's also playing uh, his creator, Zoom, which you probably got, right? What that Brett Spiner's playing his father? No, those were well. all different people. It was it was Union Soong. It was data it was lore i'm asking because when i found out at like 12 i was my mind was blown uh i i obviously know data and lore were the same person i did not know that that uh okay that noonian sung was the same actor uh i thought it was yeah, a much all, older actor no it's all Brett Spiner. they did a really even in the it's hd impressive. version they did a really good makeup job it's and, impressive uh, as shit yeah uh yeah so that's like all him and i um the reason I, I like it even now quite a bit, um, it's a little bit, it has that dumb, like, what's the reason we need to find data quickly about, like, the kid has a, is going to die because of a practical joke gone wrong, which, I, which A, I forgot about, and B, is fucking stupid as shit. Um, this is where um, season four and season five are known as uh, the A-B uh, seasons because... They were basically forced to always have a B plot with their A plot by like Berman and stuff. So you have a lot of like really great episodes that you remember that like, oh, yeah. Then also there's a kid (laughs) who touched a plant or some shit. I don't know. Um, But anyways, uh, I really do like uh, even though Lore is a maniacal evil twin, obviously, in the first one. um, I really do like his uh, Brett Spiner's portrayal of Lore in the second one. Um, of someone who is less cartoonishly evil. I think his, like, uh, you find out he's being duplicitous, but I, re- like, when that kind of, like, well, why can't you just fix me in the way he sits down and stuff like that? Like, it's actually, like, in the moment before he double-crosses everyone, uh, and at least for me, uh, it, it rang as incredibly empathetic, and um, I, I really do enjoy this episode. Uh, I agree entirely, and that's my primary criticism of the episode, is that I think that when they were in the writer's room, they are like, what's the conflict here? Why would anybody keep watching the show after this episode? And you're like, 
Well, we can sneak in a five-minute uh, who's the double plot like we did in Data Lore. <clears throat> and you're like, but it's 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 way more interesting to watch Brent Spiner uh, act against himself um, <clears throat> and then have these, like, essentially an extrapolation of that three-minute sequence in... Um, in Blade Runner, where uh, you know Ruger Hauer is meeting his 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 father, his maker, mm. he's incredibly angry about it. Like that, an extrapolation, a, a, an episode length extrapolation of of the sort of like um, artificial intelligence smart enough to recognize their creator and ask their creator, "Why the fuck did you do this?" Yeah, um, I, that is so much more interesting than uh, evil twin plot. And the evil twin plot should have been entirely jettisoned from this. But keep data and lore. Just keep data and lore as two characters yeah. who like have had previous conflict, and that adds tension. But they're both genuinely here to spend a moment with their their dying father and figure out what the fuck all this is about. And then you know maybe lore leaves with some of the wrong lessons and sets up a future episode. But like this episode didn't need to have a moment where it was like there's 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 essentially like a last minute emergency, and I was like. Couldn't this have just been? I know that I know how TV used to work, but like, couldn't yeah. this have just been a one actor basically plot? Yeah, and there's th- they definitely have episodes where they finally kind of shake that off. Like, it actually isn't all that present in the early episodes, and then it becomes like, you know, there it was kind of a TV trend at the time too. Like, we need a B plot. Yeah, can't just have an A plot. Um, anyways, also data but- being so easily hackable is a pretty good argument for him not being in Starfleet. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I actually have a note that says uh, this episode kind of proves Commander Maddox's point that like (laughs) um, from the measure of a man. And also, uh, I got to tell you, this is not the only episode where like Data goes crazy and takes over the Enterprise with a snap of the fingers. I I didn't know exactly, but I knew because like the idea that Data can be hacked and, and become an extremely powerful figure that can destroy the ship is like. Well, no shit. The writers are going to go back to that well. Like that's, yeah, that, like, that, that's a not a well. Inside. That's a fucking hot spring. That's, that's a, a hot geyser. Yeah, exactly. And and that's something that like is also like ah shit. We blew our budget on last week's episode. What can we do? Well, we can just have one of the principal cast that has to be there become the villain. But then we'll what reset if uh, the what clock if a little week. piece of what a piece of light? What if a little thing of light that's the spirit from a prison planet takes him over? I don't know. Just throwing out ideas. Yeah. The, the, this episode uh, being uh, conflict-focused really steps on uh, the fact that it is good, good, convincing, wholesome drama. And there's actually a very good, like, there's actually a very good sort of poetic explanation for why creators create yeah. uh, in it. That uh, I think is is I, I'm not even gonna paraphrase it. I think it's just worth watching the episode for. Uh, it's a great monologue. From it is, it's really good. Yeah, and I that I also like. I think it's incredibly like the most heartbreaking moment of that is like of that episode is like lore and like you know lore had recounted the the story of you know the colony and what had happened. And you realize, like, that's his perception of what happened. Because he has less, like, he has um, a perfect memory in the same way Data does, because he's essentially recording. Because he's a machine. But his his recording is an, um, influenced by human emotions and feelings and, like, 
all those things that shape our perception beyond just facts. So he has this idea of like the colonists were jealous of me. And, you know, his his dad has a different perception of how that is. Um, and so all those moments are really well done. You're right. They very much take a, 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 a page out of Blade Runner or, or I'm sure a lot of like, you know, AI speculative fiction. Uh, but I actually think the most heartbreaking moment of the show is Data's last words to his father. And I'm not trying to laugh because it is it is heartbreaking. Like, in the moment, like, the realizing what it means and how that, like, getting to know Data's character that way is so, like, it feels big. But, like, saying it as I'm about to, so all of a sudden, rang is, like, funny to me in the um, fantastical sense. But his last words to his father are just, you know, I, I know you know, but I'm not going to be able to mourn you. Which just feels like just incredibly like heartbreaking in the way that by definition is not heartbreaking on screen. Like he's recognizing this is a big deal. He is also recognizing that he is not capable of exp- of feeling that big deal because of the way that he was designed. And his last words to his father, creator, everything else is is reminding him that uh, I am not going to be able to feel anything about this moment because of the way that you made me. Yeah, yeah, it's it is it's heartbreaking, and to them to distract from all that with kind of a cheap thrill is like, well, that and Riker being like, okay, I guess you can have a moment. You know, that kid's gonna die. You really yeah. cause some problems. Yeah, them trying to draw a contrast between two yeah. sets of brothers uh, feels <laughs> so like dumb. they stuffed. They were like writing a script about a kid getting getting poisoned or whatever, and then they they wanted a crusher heavy episode, and then they were like, well, this isn't like fucking ER in space. Like we we can't make that episode. And then they're like, say. What if we take the first five pages of this script and just <gasps> we've got five minutes. We got the first five minutes of the show. <laughs> like they they uh, it feels like they they latched that on. And then they were like, well, I guess they're brothers that hurt each other. Who else is brothers? Data and lore. <laughs> like it, it, it feels like even though it does feel like uh, those two points are, are trying to make some sort of deep seated connection and two brothers coming together um after you know one betrayed the other um it ultimately isn't powerful and it takes away time in in a episode that like could have been spent on a much much better moment i'm more i'm more i'm more uh apprehensive about the adding last minute conflict than i am about them adding the the, the kids, yeah though. the kids yeah the kids kind of works because it's like it's sort of it it's sort of like you know doing some mirroring but it would work better if i knew who these fucking kids were yeah, I mean, I don't mind the idea that Lore ultimately decided to, because I guess the way that that I read the moment at the end is that, like, everything we saw with Lore where he's, like, you know, sitting like a punished school child in that, like, great, like, um, uh, hunched over way when he's asked to sit as opposed to the way Data sits and is, has that kind of impassioned, like, why, why couldn't you just make me better so that you didn't have to take me apart? All that feels legitimate. It feels to me less of a, I faked that, those moments to, to, um, to ultimately trick everyone and more of a, ultimately, I, you know, this is one of those areas where like, yeah, the design that you made, purposeful or not, kind of turned me into an evil asshole. So I 
I am not going to sit back and go, I'm fine with my brother having your last bit of programming, my last chance to evolve, to experience new things. So, yeah, I'm going to take that because I'm not I'm not able to change who I am either. And I, so I actually think that contrast works a little bit because you kind of have data saying at the end, this is this this is a very sad moment. I'm acknowledging that I'm marking that. I, but I can't not be who you made me. And you also have Lore, who it feels like he's about to have that like ability to rise above who he's been and ultimately doesn't. So I think it's actually kind of um, – I mean, I don't know what a message it stands, but I do like the idea of as a parallel that ultimately these are two creators that were not – that in, in this moment anyways – or two creations that, in this moment, anyways, were not able to expand beyond their programming. I think that's. I think that's well put. I think that's well put. I think that the and I think that that conflict is uh, why I like Brent Spiner in Data because he's so game yeah. to sort of explore all the aspects of the character. Whereas, like Data, easily could have been a. I am the robot on the ship, and it's cheaper to put paint on my face than to put me in a robot costume. Thank you for not putting me through the RoboCop Danger! Experience. Danger, Will Rob. I mean, sorry. Danger, Picard. And they could have put him through the RoboCop experience where uh, he, yeah. Peter Weller literally had to relearn how to walk. Um, and Peter Weller was sweating like literal pools of sweat when anytime he had to move that suit around. Instead, they're just like, yeah, you got your face painted and you wear the same clothes as everyone else. Like, they could have just settled for... Uh, is a robot on the ship and people don't trust the robot, then the robot proves itself worthy. Instead, they explore all the facets of the character, which is like, uh, again, I've hit this point every week, but like that's Star Trek in a nutshell. And that's why I like it so much is that it is about the the humanity and the dignity of things that we don't consider human, we don't consider dignity. And us sort of getting over those prejudices is also the path for humans just to deal with our own prejudice like if you can if you can find humanity in a slug creature um i don't know a slug creature that only growls and communicates telepathically like you should be able to find the the humanity in people of color let's uh let's talk more about generations let's let's see kirk one more time let's see check off one more time and scotty one more time Scotty with the body. <laughs> what? Kirk with squirt. I mean, starts out. Kirk, he's back. Enterprise B. You've seen most of the Enterprises now. And you also know that next one there'll be an Enterprise E. So starting next week, Peter, you've seen all the Enterprises. Um, Is there not another? Oh, okay, so Discovery is a different ship and takes place before TNG, right? It's it takes place before the original series. So actually, I lied to you. There is another Enterprise in this in the television show Star Trek Enterprise. Um, here's actually a hint. Let me let me walk you through this. I know we're a little short on time, and we started late, which doesn't mean anything to people listening to this. So uh, Star Trek original series about the ship, the Enterprise. Star Trek Next Generation also about the ship, the Enterprise. Star Trek Deep Space Nine is about a space station called. Deep Space Nine. Star Trek Voyager is about a show. Uh, is a show about a starship called it's very meta. Voyager. Called Voyager. Star Trek Enterprise, which is the canceled one that really sucks, that takes place is like the earliest one. Takes place like a hundred years before Kirk and Spock, and is not good. Um, 
It, is that trying to like connect like our modern times with the sort of utopian no. future? So Star Trek the original series takes place in about twenty two sixty. And then Star Trek Next Generation takes place in like twenty three seventy. So uh, we're talking like so uh Star Trek Enterprise takes place in like twenty one sixty. But yeah, that sort of bridges the time gap, right? Or is everything already in Utopia mode? Uh, it's like po- yeah, it is. It it bridges some time gap, but like the pre- between present day, like even now, and the original series is like two hundred and thirty years. Yeah. So it's like it's still a hundred years in the future. It's past all of the World War Three eugenics stuff. Like they have a starship. It's like I think if I remember correctly, the Enterprise on that, which is uh, so Enterprise in the original series is their its call sign is NCC seventeen oh one. And then the one after it blows up in Search for Spock is A, B, C, D. Um, and then E is what we'll see in First Contact. The one in Star Trek Enterprise is um, called NX-1701 or NX because it's like the first starship. So in the same way that like if you go in, if you see Kirk's or Picard's Reading Room, he has like the Enterprise that was a battleship, the Enterprise that was a um space uh was a was the was a space shuttle like tracking the the ships named enterprise is that you could say like the call sign from star trek was also following the legacy from this early smaller tiny enterprise before a lot of stuff happens anyways enterprise is bad but that's what it's called and then star trek discovery the ship is called discovery so at some point they just basically start naming the show after whatever the ship is um and, and um when does Star Trek uh, The Wagon come into play? Oh, that's about the, the station wagon that took Rick Berman on a vacation once where he yelled at his kids. <laughs> he had a cooler I am a powerful man! He had a cooler full of hams in the back of the car. If, if I say we're not bringing back Kirk, we're not bringing back Kirk. Dad, we're Yellowstone. <laughs> I know. I'm just recognizing what kind of power I have. Um. Uh, wait, hold on. Uh, is, is is Star Trek Enterprise the one that stars Quantum Leap? It does. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I, I I've heard nothing but horrific things about that show. It is complete garbage. I watched the first season as it aired because it uh, aired came out in two thousand one. I was all pumped. Um, I heard it got better. A uh, fun fact: it's it got canceled early. It's the only so uh, Next Generation, Voyager, and Deep Space Nine all last seven seasons. Enterprise lasts four. Um, it's finale takes, this is hundred percent true. People fucking hate this finale, especially cause I guess enterprise got good in it's last two seasons before it was canceled. The, it wraps up. It's, it, it starts doing story arcs like deep space nine and Voyager did before it finally, or I guess that's what made it good. They had a good story arc. So this is hundred percent true. Peter, it wraps up its story arc, all of it in the penultimate, penultimate episode of the series. Then the finale is, uh, uh, takes place in Star Trek The Next Generation time where Riker and Troy are doing a tr- like a training exercise on the Enterprise-D and they're watching a computer simulation of a random mission that the Enterprise, the NX, the Archer, the Quantum Leap Enterprise went on 200 years before to help solve a mystery in the current day. <laughs> it's a clip show? It's not a clip show. It's, for, it's for, that uh, for Warp. It, it, it's a clip show. <laughs> it repositions their their final episode as a holodeck 
a television episode that Riker and Troy are watching to help solve a mystery. <laughs> Wait, so it makes the show like a fantasy? Not a fantasy. Like, so, uh, so sometimes on the holodeck, they will like use it as a learning tool. Like, Hey computer. So it's, it's not saying that the whole series was a holodeck simulation. They're like essentially watching a historical record. So it's the equivalent of, um, say maybe like Obama watching a bunch of Kennedy speeches before he had to go write a speech. Oh, okay. So, so people hate it because they got invested in Enterprise and the whole, they solve all the Enterprise shit and then the finale of Enterprise becomes, um, what can uh, Deanna Troy and William Riker uh, solve a space mystery using uh, a random adventure that, um, that, that, that Quantum Leap Captain went on? God, that sounds like a huge fucking waste of time. I've never seen it. I just know people fucking hate it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, what a way to that, that that sounds like a cute thing, a cute like gimmick episode halfway through. But like you don't put you don't make your finale a cute gimmick episode. Come on. Yeah, especially when it you know it actually was getting some critical acclaim, and still got canceled because it was on UPN and like it Power Fifty. Power Fifty. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, yeah, it's Star Trek Enterprise B. Kirk twenty years later. He's, you know, they're bringing him aboard for his little maiden, maiden voyage around the, the solar system. Uh, and Kirk is his first time he's been back on a starship. And he's like, fuck, I kind of want to be a captain, which makes sense from the whole arc that we kept seeing throughout all the other movies. Which I like. I like the idea that, you know, Star Trek Undiscovered Country was supposedly his retirement. And ultimately, like, he kept saying, I don't want to retire. I want to be a captain. They kind of forced him to retire, like, a third time in the last movie. And yeah, 20 years later, he's not happy retired. Like, it it just doesn't... He, you know, he's someone who should have always been on his ship. Um, so he goes there with um, Scotty and uh, Chekhov, his two best friends, uh, because, and this is true, Peter, to force Kelly and Leonard Nimoy were like, yeah, I, I, no, thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, they are on the Enterprise B voyage. It runs into a, a, a energy ribbon. And because it's supposed to be just a little tour around the, the solar system, they're the closest ship, but they're also not equipped for it. So they uh, they don't have a lot of the equipment that would normally solve the problem of of two, two other civilian ships being caught in the ribbon and about to uh, uh, get destroyed. So the ruin likes so, people. It doesn't like ships. Yes. Uh, well, that people can go into the ribbon. Ships um, are mechanical and explode. It's, it, the we'll we'll find it, the the ribbon's called the Nexus. We'll find out more about that later. It's actually kind of a weird device in Star Trek, like a weird like oh, it's it's basically heaven moving around. Uh, but anyway, also why does he have to? We'll get to it. Yeah, we'll get to it. Why does he um, just hop out of his ship and be like, "All right, Nexus, come just, pick me up." transport me into i guess the transporters don't work so that is important anyways so yeah so the, essentially kirk goes to save the day recognizes he doesn't get to be captain goes and like moves some things around because they're short-staffed uh an, uh a thing from an energy ribbon blasts the ship it has happens to be on a deck where kirk's on he f tumbles into space uh dying uh they beam survivors Aboard, two of them are notable. One is Malcolm McDowell, who keeps screaming he needs to go back to the ship. And one of them is uh, Whoopi Goldberg. Both are Elorians, and we talked a little bit about this. Their species lives for hundreds and hundreds of years, and the Borg destroyed their homeworld. 
another thing that was actually helpful for you to watch those board yeah, episodes. Yeah, ribbons for her pleasure. Ribbons for her pleasure. So we now go, we fast forward. Uh, Picard uh, to to an Enterprise, uh, like an, an 1800s ship. And essentially, they're promoting war from lieutenant to lieutenant commander. It's a really fun, all the crew together. Actually, um, because I recognize we're running short on time and I don't know, I, I'm almost wondering if we should just pause these moments and talk about them, Peter. Because, uh, and I know we don't normally do that, but, you know, whatever. We, we try a different intro. We can do whatever we want. Because I'm interested in what you make of this scene. Because I, I, I really like, this is kind of where Next Generation ended up. Um, where really that feeling that they're all friends and family in like this really like compelling way. Like, yeah, they go on space adventures. Yeah, they have drama. But all eight of them, like, <laughs> instead of just saying, hey, Worf, you're promoted, let's go have some fun. And I really like this scene as both kind of acknowledging where the Next Generation crew is by the end of it. And I know you've only seen little markings between that. But also letting um, letting everyone let loose a little bit and show what it, what good chemistry they have as a as a as an ensemble before uh, you know the plot has to kick in and things take a turn. Yeah, I really like this scene because it, this feels like they're making a consolation to um, an audience that maybe hasn't seen the show. Um, this is one of the few scenes in the first half of the movie that feels like it's actually trying to intro you to the concept of yeah. the show and who the characters are and there's little moments where they are explaining you know i think data is kind of explained from scratch barring that that chip um yeah it's kind of like he gets a moment where it's like well he doesn't entirely understand human interactions but he's an indelible he's trying his best part of the crew <laughs> he cares about everyone as yeah. best as his programming allows him he's a He's part of the crew uh, and him sort of not understanding a joke kind of kicks off his whole plot line. Um, yeah. And I love them starting on the on the Enterprise boat. It feels like it feels like a it, it, it feels like a classic episode cold open where they're just like, wait, what the fuck? Why are they on a boat? Yeah. It feels expensive. It feels like it feels very fun and festive in a way that like the show doesn't always feel like sort of carefree in a way the show doesn't always feel and then when the rest of the movie is like trying to stop an apocalypse event um yeah they uh it, it helps round out the movie a little bit yeah and i love i mean you're right like it does introduce i love the Riker picard moments together <laughs> whether you know picard's basically describing he wishes he could he could have been an old-timey captain on a boat and and Riker, very true to his character is like ugh you know, shitty food and no women. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I, I like, I like that, that dynamic also, because that matches my picture of what Riker is, which is Riker's yeah. like pragmatic. And like his romanticism is like grounded in the pragmatic. Like he wants to make good friends. He wants to, he wants to, you know, find beautiful partners. He wants to have a good time. Um, whereas Picard is more like, Picard's heaven fantasy is literally like, what if I was from a Charles Dickens novel? <laughs> yeah, which like actually fits. Like, what if I had a fam? What if I had a family and I got to eat dinner with my, with a family? Like, it that makes sense because even the, one of the things I really like about this is that like he is such a consistent character with both who he is on the show. And I know there's a lot of these moments that we'll, we'll actually get to a few big ones, but like his kind of consistent arc on the show is like, 
he is an explorer like that he he's interested he was interested in archaeology as a kid he's obsessed with all these little nerdy things about learning and gaining more knowledge and and understanding all that's who picard is and what he's lost through pursuing that and not i shouldn't say lost like that is the way that picard sometimes views it and it becomes a a a pivotal moment in this movie but ultimately like Picard wouldn't have been happy being a be staying at home on the winery in the grapevines like uh, uh, Robert does, right? But he recognizes is that that's what he is given up to do the thing that he is that is his passion, and I think that's something that's universal, right? Like the decisions that you make, Peter, are the decisions that I've made. It's not that we would change them. Ultimately, I think that. You know, we picked the things, whatever those things are, that work well for us when, you know, in my case, you know, it would be like having kids and settling down and and dropping some more serious uh, aspirations I had in my early 20s to, like, move to California and become a screenwriter. Um, But, like, ultimately, like, what I've given up by by having a 9-to-5 job is, like, the ability to... um, is to, you know, spend all of my free time writing and doing all this stuff. And I don't know if I would have been good at it, but it's like the thing that you think of sometimes wistfully of like, that's what I've given up. The, sometimes the when I see like greener, the road less travel, like everyone has, I think, even at their happiest moments, like they have a, a moment where they're like, yeah, I could have I could have had that because our world is full of crazy possibilities. Yeah, and ultimately you can't do everything. So the hope is that you pick the things that are best for you. And Picard is always very good at acknowledging like uh that he has picked. He he's not like regretful. He's picked the road that's best for him and he understands what he's given up to do that instead. But he also recognizes that giving up being a captain and an explorer would have been much much worse for him. So yeah, that that makes that makes so much sense for Picard's character. Which also then feeds into what happens next in this movie, because he gets a communique while he's on the holodeck and fantasizing about being an explorer, which is the life he's ultimately gotten to live, even if it's in a different type of vessel. And he goes and he gets news that we find out pretty quickly after is Robert and Rene, his nephew and his brother, died in a fire. Um, and those are people that, Peter, you just saw in the episode Family, which is, uh, again, like I said, watching those so close to each other, which is the first time I've ever done that, uh, actually makes what felt like, oh, yeah, I could see why he'd be sad about that, actually feel important. And recognizing that Picard was able to live vicariously through his brother on those things that he left behind, his family, uh, or the concept of his own family. Um and now that's gone. And uh, not only are people that he loves gone, um, but but that kind of like, you know, as he says, the Picard family names, like the legacy lives on is also gone. Two things about that moment. One, it's nice that they finally let D, uh, Troy be a counselor, like Guinan's not in there <laughs> hugging him about it. Uh, yeah, between... it was something I called out a few episodes ago. I was like, why do we have Guinan and Troy? Yeah, we talk about, like, Troy's character was done a disservice, but partially it's because Guinan became the captain's confidant. Uh, so it's great that Troy can actually be Troy and have a moment in this movie. 
She was always not always uh, she was not always well served on the show. But the moment, like when he breaks down to Troy and describes why he's been walking around the ship just fucking grumpy as shit and yelling at everyone and yelling which, at Jonathan Frakes after they've just established that him and Riker they're best buds. Like, yeah, they they they've transcended the first or second season sort of of you know uh, chump fuckery. Um, yeah, they are now. They are now fully trusting. He is. He has uh, decided that his ambitions lie on the ship, and uh, Picard is fully confident that Riker should stay as long as Riker wants to. And like all of a sudden, he's like barking at him, and I'm like, yeah, like this would be yeah. really destabilizing to the ship, even though Riker is ready to basically take over Picard at any moment. Yeah. So. Um concurrently to that there's two things that happen one they get a distress call from the amargosa observatory uh looks like it's been attacked by romulans they show up there the station's a fucking mess the only survivor is dr soren played wonderfully were you excited when you saw that malcolm mcdowell was not only in this movie but going to be the antagonist like oh absolutely dude i was pumped (laughs) like how could i can't i legitimately can't think of a better antagonist for picard and one of my favorite things of this movie that this movie does fucking perfectly is when the two of them are speechifying against each other one for good and one for evil (laughs) it's so good like who else would you you have fucking patrick stewart and malcolm mcdowell describing like the tenets of like whether um uh you should whether actions uh should be almost democratic in that they are you know thinking about the whole the whole of 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 existence and people and malcolm mcdowell being like everyone dies i'm being selfish and they play like that's so good that's genius having those two is genius well because it's also it, it it highlights something that i think it's easy to forget which is that um a lot of these british actors um we talked about this in uh our green room episode uh on uh, we love to watch to watch yeah um is uh patrick stewart uh is like a fucking shakespearean actor like yeah he uh he he got his chops like a lot of that that his generation of british actors like performing on stage um malcolm mcdowell while he came out of like uh counterculture punk film movements also has a lot of stage experience we mostly consider him as like someone who played alex in clockwork orange and then later came back to like just play scuzzballs forever but like (laughs) he's someone with actual fucking chops and like you can hear it even when he's delivering like scumball monologues in halloween 2 by rob zombie like yeah even even in trashiest of trash malcolm mcdowell can lend this bit of like um like glorify he he might be waiting in trash but he's on top of trash mountain he's he's king of mount Trashmore, and uh like that's what's so great about this scene is because you're watching two act two british actors Mm-hmm. have probably acted with each other maybe before the british film industry and stage and stage uh you know uh community is not that huge they probably um, gave like a little head nod as they walked past a at least a concurrent rehearsal at the globe yes yes like they they they, they probably had acted together or yeah. worked together in some capacity or been at parties together because malcolm they're they're yeah yeah. And to the, and to see to them like the both, same age. Yeah. yeah, and to see them both like uh really chucking these insults at each other really I help I think helps heighten the cinematic gravitas of what is for in a 
uncharacteristic for the movie, kind of an ugly sequence. Like the sequence yeah. on um I don't Viridian know 3. on on, Sorry. on Sun Nuke Mountain. Um, Vir- Viridian three, Peter. I Viridian know the things three. this time. It's the one thing I know the names of the stuff. Viridian Let me three. Say the names. Are you sure you don't mean Viridian? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, uh, and Viridian three, when they're on that mount that mountaintop, it looks cheap and shitty, like like uh, a, a lower budget Star Trek episode. Even the original really, series. Really, it's a location. It looks so shitty and cheap for some reason, despite the fact that, like, the crash landing looks amazing. And, like, I just think that the cinematographer maybe didn't know how to shoot the desert. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. Like, it, 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 it looks like it all does, the rocks it, are fake. <laughs> interesting. So it doesn't seem that way to me. But also, again, I'm, I'm taking my perception of an 11 year old and filtering it through a 37 year old too. yeah so like, and the device for me, that it they have up real. there it all just looks really like janky and shitty in a way that like i, I just it doesn't really work for me yeah. um anyways um and i think that in that moment where the movie seems to you know it, it gets very cheap gets very small um it adds gravitas it adds importance to a moment where it feels like the movie ran out of money yeah, um, well, some of that was reshot because the original, uh, they had to spend like five, they had to get a new budget for $5 million and essentially reshoot a lot of that because um, the way that Kirk died originally, people were like extremely unhappy with. I think he was shot in the back running away from Soren. Um, so some of that is just just real actual, like after they'd edited a whole film together being like, oh, boy. <laughs> Whoopsie daisies. Uh, but um, yeah, the the Malcolm McDowell stuff is so perfect. And also, like, when I say, like, why I think this movie is the most true to everyone's character, I, I definitely in- include Picard in that. Like, Khan made so much sense for, like, a, a great antagonist for Kirk. They were both cocksure, physical people. You know, Kirk would get down and fight the alien and beat the shit out of him. He was on the away teams. He was ready to go. Khan was the same way. He was like, you know, arrogant, confident, and extremely like he, his strength was was smart, but also in in physical. Picard can throw a punch, but where Picard, um, Picard really is a like he's a thinking man. He analyzes the situation. He he's an extreme humanist that comes from being you know a learned and intelligent person who has like decided that life is precious based on the evidence and has spent a career fighting to save any concept of life spent his life devoted to that as like a study of of the uh humanities or you know whatever that is across all life and species uh and you you see that like kirk sees himself as a cowboy basically and picard sees himself as a like uh a, a uh intellectual in society that's why like a, a, the perfect foil for picard is a malcolm mcdowell type character who he's not the strongest you know he's not a physical specimen he can also throw a punch and shoot a laser beam if, if needed which you know happens a little bit at the end but you know ultimately he's also a very smart genius scientist who has looked at the whole of existence and decided that life is actually meaningless like he's he he knows and that's why i love his um tit for tat with picard because malcolm mcdowell is so great about like going yeah i see your point here's the conclusion i've reached based on that like i don't disagree with your science i don't disagree Mm -hmm. with your logic 
I'm not maniacal or evil. I've just come to a different conclusion and that you think all life is precious and worth saving because the time you get is important. And I think if everything dies, all life is meaningless. And I have found a way personally to escape that fate that is across all humanity. That Can is I give the this perfect, a shot real quick? Yeah, that is the perfect foil for Picard. They say time is the fire in which we all burn. Yeah, it's so good. It's great. So great. Also, he. Uh, I like that. Uh, I thought Mal- at first he was actually mesmerizing Picard, but instead, Picard he just hit Picard with that line at the perfect moment. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, and I think that's why, like, the death stuff actually rings true. Like the idea of Picard even being tempted. I love how little Picard is tempted by by like having whatever you want forever because that's not who Picard is. But the fact that he he gets that emotional gut punch of having to like leave, quote unquote, paradise. Is because of he he has recognized what um, what has happened. There's that great earlier line where he's talking to Troy, where he's like, "I've realized there's more days behind me than there are in front of me." And that is, I mean, that is a line that like stayed with me when I was 11. It's definitely when I'm 37, a line that like hits harder every time I see it, and I'm a little older. Like, hopefully, I'm not at the point where I'm. You know, there's more years behind than front, but like the the per, the, the ratio is getting more and more uh, even or tipping the scale, and like as you start recognizing that, like it is it is like oh yeah, you start thinking about those things. So if anything, all that stuff has only gotten more resonant as I've gotten older. And Malcolm McDowell loved that fucking line so much he got a watch engraved with it. Really. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. true. I, I um, purposefully have done, uh, uh, tried to remove myself from doing what I do for We Love to Watch, which is like looking fine. at trivia sections, here for. Yeah. looking at Wikipedia, doing the, one of my favorite things I like to do for We Love to Watch is, is go and um, search for articles of the era or reviews of the era for the movie. Sometimes it's garbage and it's just people that didn't get the movie and needed, you know, a little bit of time to get perspective. Sometimes it's gold. Like, uh, especially like these like absolute like read go read era reviews of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's hilarious. <laughs> no one gets it. Um, <laughs> and uh, but um, the, the the this was something that I I didn't look up anything on. But like Malcolm McDowell is a a one of those actors I truly truly admire, and like he has such an crazy body of work, and he's one of those actors similar to Nicolas Cage, where he's like sure. You could pick out a dozen bad performances he's given. You could pick out maybe two dozen. <laughs> I don't know. But the thing I don't, is, so, he's a guy who just keeps throwing himself at, at an 11 at everything all the time. And what ends up happening is that either pans out or it doesn't pan out. So, like, I remember him being kind of uh, unruly and bad in uh, the Halloween 2 remake. Uh, he's not that good in Tank Girl, I don't think. Um, I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't seen Tank Girl. I think Malcolm McDowell is someone who meets the material. <laughs> like, and, and I'm not saying that because I haven't seen Tank Girl. I know a lot of people love it. But, Tank Girl's a good but, movie, but I don't think he's but, a good part of it. But, I mean, I think he's he's like, oh, I'm I'm uh, like I'm thinking of like an in good company with to- I don't know if you remember that movie Topher Grace. Oh God! And he's like he's like I think I want to say Scarlett Johansson is the but maybe that's wrong. But he's whoever whoever Topher Grace wants to marry. His I think it's Topher Grace's bosses and the father of the girl that he likes. Terrible movie. Um, but I love how like 
when Malcolm McDowell shows up in that role and he's just like, I'm evil businessman. <laughs> like, I guarantee he got that script and was like, sure. But like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fucking commit to this. I'm not internalizing this character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Ian either internalizes characters or doesn't. I bet you Malcolm McDowell was annoying to be around when he was making this movie just because I bet you he internalized his character and was a nihilist for a few months. Oh, I don't think so. Uh, actually, uh, he talks about how he fucking loved working on this movie, working with Patrick Stewart, had so much fun. He doesn't strike me as a... I'm not saying method, scenes. but I'm saying, like, I, I, I think when you watch him talk about, like, if, um, and, like, when he was making that movie and he was like, oh, I would yeah. be... I bothered the hell out of my parents and my girlfriend at the time asking all these stupid questions of them all the time because I was so inquisitive and I was I was questioning everything and I was I think she I, I think like his girlfriend left him or something after after he was making if because he was being so annoying about it. But um but yeah, anyways, Malcolm McDowell is great. This is a challenging role for Brent Spiner, I would say. Yeah, let's so um, the, so maybe, the other concurrent maybe this isn't it, maybe this isn't a challenging role for Malcolm McDowell because it is definitely in his wheelhouse. It's so in his it, wheelhouse. It's so in his wheelhouse. Maybe it's not challenging for him because he's so joyful and getting to play with that familiar territory. He's on he's on a it's a it's it's a, a home turf game for him. And yeah. he performs amazing on home turf. Brent Spiner yeah, and he gets, he, is is playing on on a, an away game, and uh, he's also on the away team in the Star Trek. So Pilots. actually, let's let's talk about that. So the other plot of this is that after the incident on the uh, holodeck version of the Enterprise, mm-hmm. Data decides decides that he's come as far as he can come without uh, ingesting the chip and like getting to know feelings. Right, so he puts in the chip. Uh, so he feels emotions essentially for the first time, um, and that has a lot of initially unintended consequences. In the same way that like managing all those things at once would cause, I think, anyone. So uh, how that manifests is that like when Soren reveals himself as a super baddie, he gets scared and hide and doesn't save Jordy. Jordy ends up kidnapped. We'll talk about that in a sec. Um, he makes a lot of really terrible jokes and like sings to himself and everyone is like, can you stop? We're trying to work. Like you can't make the tricorder into look, it's Mr. Tricorder. Like we're like, I get it. You just had emotions, but you still have a job to do. He, he gets the, a swear word like, Oh shit. When he realized they're going to crash into the planet and he gets to react jubilantly when um, they don't die from that crash land. Here's why. So as a, when I was 11, I liked it because it had a lot of funny stuff. Like hearing Data say shit, I'm sorry. If you're in if you're in 6th grade, that rules. Uh or like the yes when they land, that rules. As an adult, I actually like it for a completely different reason. And that's because here is a person who gets emotions for the first time and his inclination is to be make the worst unfunny jokes and voices of all time and let me tell you peter that feels extremely accurate if you like we've graduated as older uh smart people about humor that like cool stuff we're sophisticants we we we've like graduated beyond the humor of our youth in some cases and 
And like now we're we like stuff that we still probably like some of that stuff. And I, I know that this sounds like I'm out my own ass. I don't mean it that way, but like we recognize you're saying what, you are more mature than you're 16. I don't I don't think that's uh or 11. Yeah, no, but just like 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 there's so much stuff that we love here that is commenting on other forms of humor, like anti comedy and like a lot like it's an interlacing grow. of growth. Like it, yeah, it's, exactly. It's growth from uh, different realms of understanding all coming together and pushing you forward. Let me tell you what made my daughter to die. Both my two-year-old and my six-year-old fucking die was when I described the diaper that I put on my two-year-old as something that is there to catch the poop. (laughs) And then I made a catching motion in my hand. And uh, they wanted me to do it again and again. Just say, yeah, catches the poop. And then close my fist. And that was the funniest fucking thing in the world. Because they are just hearing that for the first time. Like, that, that is funny to them. So Data, basically being a two-year-old who's learned to do voices, feels right. Like, it feels like he wouldn't be funny. It feels like he would be annoying as shit. I love the way everyone reacts to trying to understand his that this is a huge milestone and a growth for him, while also recognizing he's being annoying as shit. And no one, no one even humoring him. Like... Uh huh. Okay, data. Can you focus? Like I kind of yeah. like I I, I, I kind of works. It is for embarrassing, me, and I think is... Spiner's perf- I think Spiner's performance, it, it, while definitely over the top and like out of place, I do think it works for. I am a two-year-old in a robot's body who learned how to say poopy. And well, I, I like it because at first everyone's kind of tickled by the fact that their friend is acting different, or at least yeah. they find it charming. And then eventually, uh, Jordy's like, hey, dude, you need to shut the fuck up. <laughs> I know. It's like, but it is right. Like, I do feel like that is like four hours later, and that feels to be the right time. Yeah, where he's like, I know exactly what, what's going on with you, and you need to figure out how to get your shit together. Because also, when you're 13 or whatever, 11, whatever age we decided he's at, um, you need people to tell you to shut the fuck up. You need people to tell you to shut the fuck up. And also... Um, I'll tell you what, my two-year-old's laughing about poop is hilarious. If you meet just, because it's my two-year-old, if you meet a random kid or a kid that's a friend of yours and they're like, I poop out of my butt, the first time you're going to be like, oh, great kid. And about the third time you're like, is it too late for an abortion? <laughs> like your tolerance for that when it's not oh, your yeah. own fle- oh, flesh yeah. or blood is so it's like Even it's my so nieces low. are somewhere between that like they're they're yeah. right my nieces and nephews are somewhere between that where like my my nephew will come up and, and go poop and i'll be like that's that's lovely that's lovely buddy that's you did a great job robert that's not his actual name <laughs> um you did a great job robert with your 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 timely reference i do have to poop in fact and then he comes up to you 20 minutes later after i'm like in the middle of a conversation with his sister about like how she's doing during the pandemic and like yeah. all this like serious shit and, I'll, and all of a sudden i'll go poop and i'm like i will throw you out the window i'll do it i know yeah. where the window is and i know how little you weigh yeah, yeah. So like, I could carry five fact, of you like, and throw like, you out the window. Yeah, I will wreck you. Like, you understand? 
Um, but yeah, I, I do like, feel I could like go, the- I could go to the window, open it, say, I'm going to throw you out this window and you could start sprinting. I could give you a 30 second head start and guess who's going to catch you and get you out that window. So I love it. Like, I actually think as, as like data being like, oh, uh, that's for your children, Bill Fox, if you're listening to this one. Oh, yeah. I mean, Bill's children. <laughs> I'm, specific- I'm specifically speaking about Bill Fox, one child, and he would agree with He's me 100%. <laughs> um, <laughs> Robert. Um, we're just going to call him Robert. Oh, yeah. I mean, when my six-year-old said, like, you know, as they get a certain age, you're like, yeah, I get it. You find poop fun. Like, even your patience with your own children runs out. Yeah. So I think, like, the fact that Data plays it so big, and I really like the moment where, like, he can't stop laughing. And, like, they actually do some very subtle special effects to indicate that, like, his um, circuits and his wires are causing his face to stretch in, like, inhuman ways. Um, like, and then he, like, kind of shuts down for a second. Is like, oh, shit. Uh, something overloaded something. Like, so it is definitely, like, childish and feels a little bit out of place, but... I don't feel like it's um, – I don't feel like it's a Jar Jar Binks thing. Like, we need a pee poo poo <laughs> Well, it stops person. in, like, he gets scared during the, the Soren attack. So it, it and then he gets lasts, angry like, and 25 mad. minutes. Yeah. 20 yeah. minutes? So Jar Jar uh, proceeds to be a dignified member of the Senate after the first movie. Um, but, yeah, that was something where I was like, this is kind of embarrassing – but the crew was all looking at each other like, <laughs> yeah. um, and I like, I like, I like that sort of conflict. Um, though I do think that that is a sequence where you're supposed to be laughing with him, but you understand why it would be annoying a little bit later. So I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I don't have any problem. I, I don't think that this is, I wasn't saying this is a challenging role to mock Brent Spiner. I'm saying that it's actually fairly fucking admirable for him to nail this kind of performance where he's regular data, uh, he's data with a little bit more, and then he's data with a little bit more sort of, um, you know, deep data, which is still within that range, yep. but, you know, it, it's it's deep data. Then he has to go data off the rails, but play it entirely different than lore, um, and it needs to be played yeah. in such a way that like is that manic energy feels like it would actually be how data would react to that manic energy. Um, yeah. then he needs to find a way to make it charming at some point, which the fist pump when he's really pumped about it, uh, is great. And then he needs to make it soulful. So that moment where he's like, I was afraid. And that's why Jordy got grabbed. Like, that that yeah, and then I also love the ending for that too, where he decides to like he de- like he recognizes the challenges at the end when they're surveying the ship and they're trying to find anything that's salvageable before they they beam off, and he's like, you know, um, this is what Pete, this is this is what I wanted. Like it was tough to deal with. It definitely didn't go smoothly, but like if I throw it out, you know, if I take the chip out. Then, then why did I put it in the first place? I am trying to evolve and better myself, and I need, you know, for him, he kind of, the 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 underlying thing for him is that like he he stretches the boundary of his programming, but he still is ultimately in the same way that we're ultimately like made up of our nature and nurture and everything else that got us to where we are. Like we can only, in some cases, we can only stretch to some point before we need outside. Uh, influence 
Um, and so he, yeah, he decides to keep it. And then there is a very touching moment where he uh, finds his cat spot and starts to cry. And I love that line. Um, I guess it must be malfunctioning again because um, I'm crying even though I'm happy. Um, and again, speaking as a parent of children, I've had that conversation recently with my six-year-old where she's been watching something that is happy and she starts crying and like a recognition of like the tears that I'm aware of come from a place of sadness. And so I don't know why this is happening to me. And I really love that moment. Yeah, it's um, it, you're that's a That's a great point because. Uh, we go on a journey with with Data where he's only annoying for 20 minutes and then we get to share in his his growth arc right after that. Um, and we get, obviously before that we get normal Data as a sort of baseline. Yeah. Um, so we go through a sort of arc where like he, he reaches an annoying nadir right at the point where you're like, <laughs> fuck man, yeah, you should have helped you already. Um, yeah. and, and then as the movie sort of... Um, frightened <laughs> oh great so so glad i get to see data my favorite robot on the big screen i'm so scared <laughs> take my friend please you're like you're watching it and you're like one of my favorite things about data is how he just reacts with uh instant he's tough he's like spock he's strong yeah this like beautiful spock like rationality uh oh great you ruined the character great um but it, but it, but it also it, by the time that they've undone that plot, which is, um, you know, they blow up the Klingon ship, which was, by the way, so satisfying. This is something from the, the previous episodes that really paid off for me. So satisfying to see the two uh, Klingon sisters get blown <laughs> I up. I know. It uh, is. It's so it feels so good because it feels, it feels so like they get the away. They do show up. They do show up one more time in Next Generation that we didn't bother watching. And they are just it's like just like I just want. Just why can't they just kill him? And it, it is fun that they use that. Uh, they use it in this uh, in this movie. I also like. Um, I really like a concept that somehow they never use throughout Star Trek. So really quickly, Soren is working with Lursen Bietar from uh, the Redemption of the Duras sisters, and um, because they're still plotting to uh, try to take back command of uh, Klingon homeworld, Klingon High Council. Um, and Soren's thing is like, oh, once the Enterprise shows up, I know how to handle this. We'll kidnap Jordy. I'm going to torture Jordy. There was actually a more difficult torture scene um, where they put like implants into his heart, which is why Dr. Crusher's like, we got the nano implants out. So like, if you're like, why didn't they check them? They did. Some cut content. Um, or deleted scenes, as they call it in movies. <laughs> as opposed to video games. Uh, been reading too much Demon Soul cut content stuff, uh, <laughs> Peter. Um, but uh, so, um, and essentially, uh, uh, Soren, being like a technological genius, basically goes, Hey, I'm going to make it so that you give Jordy back. You're going to be able to see what his visor sees. And also, like, the, the fact that the way these shields work, they're not physical shields, they're not armor. Their phase, and we we learned a little bit about that, Peter, when in the Borg episodes, right? That concept of like you need to, they can adapt their shields can adapt to meet the whatever the phase frequency of your phaser, so that you need to constantly change it, or else you know they can figure it out. Um, and They'll they never really patterns, use... and any human would inevitably fall into a pattern, and randomization is kind of the only way to make it work. Yeah, with specifically like just the 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 frequency that that 
phaser, which is like photon light. And, you know, it's like the next step of lasers exists on like it's energy. You can block it with energy if it's the same frequency. Um, so they used it for board, but they never really used it at that concept of like, hey, if you know the frequency of someone's shields by that same logic, you can actually punch through them like they're not there. And so somehow that's never been used in any Star Trek. That is not a reused plot line. It's a very good one. Um, knowing it's a very good one, though. It's something where you're like, oh, it's just on a screen, huh? Yeah, <laughs> that's the part that's like. I mean, I guess oh, it yeah. isn't like the core of the core of the ship, right? Like you wouldn't be allowed yeah. in the reactor core unless you were like fucking top top level engineer, right? Yeah, and right or wrong, one thing that like Starfleet is very consistent on is that like they're not like even though they seem very military oriented, they're military oriented in a utopian peaceful society that wants to spread peace. So they const I mean, they constantly, you've already seen it, Peter, in the small amount of F episodes of Next Generation. They're constantly inviting people on their, sh- or the original series too, like, Khan, like, sure, go through our computer banks. We want you to learn. Like, they're not great at, like, secrecy or protecting sensitive information in the way that, like, I don't know, like, a more militaristic uh, society would. Which can seem a little bit like naivete or like, why would you put that there? Why doesn't it take eight secret codes to unlock that information? But I guess like you can make the case that at the very least they're consistent in there, not thinking that maybe we should classify or hide more information that would be helpful to our enemies. Um, so, yeah, so so essentially that makes this shitty old bird of prey be able to fire right through there. Um, right through their shields, which means that they are getting fucking blown to shit. They get tore up because they're mostly just sitting there. Like they're not like they're not like zooming around. This isn't Star Wars style dogfights. We'll see that a little bit next time with the Borg. Uh, There's a good Borg fight. Um, but yeah, I I uh, I think that it's great to see the the Klingon sisters getting blown up. Uh, them thinking that maybe they're gonna get a chance at that trilithium weapon is kind of cool. Um, yeah, great Riker moment it, too, right? Where he's like, where you, they finally figure out how to beat him, like make him cloak with some whatever bullshit, and right there's just silence, and Riker goes fire, and it has that very slow torpedo go right to Lursa and Beatar and they go, shit, we're cloaking! And they just stare at the screen while it just hangs in the air before... It's so good. Like, that is a great moment. Yeah, it, it, it really does work very well. This is one of those, like, Star Trek sort of um, chess-like matches, almost, where you're like, uh, wait, how do they figure their way... How do they problem-solve their way out of this? This is not about who can shoot faster or quicker. Um, this is about who can, who can, uh, problem solve. Um, this is more of a, what's it called? Like a Kobayashi Maru. Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. It's a, it's a, but it's quick too. Like they don't have time to brainstorm because their ship is getting rocked. But they are get brainstorming really fast. Like they find yeah. out that it, it, it's, it, they find out really quickly that like, oh shit, there's this one thing, this bird of, this bird of prey has this, this flaw and, uh, then they use that uh, data jumps in to use that flaw against it, and they they find out that the ship is so fuck badly fucked after the battle that they need to disassemble the ship, uh, you know, the ship and saucer. And then they find out, oh, is it is it the planet's gravity pulls the saucer in? Uh, no. So the explosion of the warp core, they basically don't get away in time. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it propels them to the planet. 
And that that's sort of that that's sort of like give and take where they're like they're making strategic decisions on the second is is what separates like Star Trek from Star Wars and kind of keeps them um, in their own sort of fields. Whereas like Star Wars is very much about like overcoming your your enemies by being a better fighter. And Star Trek is very much about like overcoming your enemies by being smarter and maybe even turning your enemies into friends. Uh, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, um, Peter, as someone who, so you like, you loved the soft separation when we watched Encounter Farm. Loved it this time. You've got to see it. Like, they only did it, I think, four total times. I think there's one other random episode of Star Trek Next Generation. You saw it the other time that it's kind of well known for, which is the battle with the Borg. Um, and now you get to see it, like, actually used for its purpose. Oh, shit, our warp core's about to blow up. Get in the lifeboat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is really great. It makes me sorry. Uh, it is really great. It makes me super happy because this is something that like I grew up with the iconography of the Enterprise, and then all of a sudden I'm like, there's two ships and they yeah. kiss. <laughs> Make them kiss. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I dig it, and getting to see the saucer just absolutely, uh, just go uh hard at ham into the planet's surface uh just go uh roadie dog style right into the planet <laughs> um get getting dirty tearing up the earth um atb off-road fury uh it's just it's it's really satisfying because like while i don't hate the enterprise it is it is satisfying to see the stakes get raised right and like yeah it is something it, but you know they they haven't blown off the enterprise in a while when was the last time they blew blew up this fucker star star trek three yeah it's a bit it's a bit four movies three movies uh yeah about uh about 10 years yeah yeah it's a it, it feels it's been a while yeah, it's brand um but the the uh bird of prey looks amazing the new enterprise looks amazing enterprise saucer cr- crash is practical effects you can see dirt getting kicked up it you is. can tell it's a miniature i don't think i've ever and it actually like it doesn't look like a miniature that's that you can only tell it's shot- a miniature because of water and dirt flicking in the air yeah. you can't make a water molecule or a water droplet or a piece of dirt any smaller <laughs> yeah that's the only way you could tell it uh but it looks amazing and they really like the way it hits the trees the way they cut back to the ship um i also really like uh we didn't talk much about geordie we haven't really done a geordie episode really that really gives them a chance to shine i really love geordie um in general um i really love him like managing the escalating stage of their warp drive about to explode <laughs> like uh you know in a in in movie form one of the great things about the series is that like you just have geordie episodes or you have wharf episodes or you have data episodes that really lets the ensemble still work together while highlighting a specific character um i like geordie too and i like that they give him a hero moment after he is you know indirectly responsible for this incident um oh yeah so your your point is that it's his fault so he should at least be able to handle it competently i just mean nerds are are vengeful assholes and it's nice to give him a redemptive arc even though he doesn't realize he's on a redemptive arc (laughs) i'll tell you what it's funny because like we watched the mind's eye because it was part of the klingon arc and i'm like oh this is not the first time that uh jordy's been kidnapped to be used against uh the enterprise in uh because of the duress sisters like that that feels like a very like it's unrelated. They it the, the results like one he's brainwashed into 
uh, trying to shoot uh, like that governor or whatever the Klingon planet, and then here they like, but like, man, Jordy's got to stop getting kidnapped, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why? Why did they want to pick on the blind guy so much? Well, that's why, right? Like his, he's got a magic thing on his eyes that they can do. They, you know, they can fuck with. It's he's got science stuff. Same reason why Data can randomly do stuff all the time okay. too. Okay, so like Data and Jordy, I'm not saying they shouldn't be on the ship. They're clearly great assets. I'm just saying every regulatory, you know, every financial institution on the planet has uh, regulatory concerns and audit concerns. All I'm saying is, anytime they're off the ship and they come back on the ship, they gotta they gotta go through some checks and balances. They gotta go through uh, fucking Data has to go through a, a, a Voight-Kampff test. And Jordy has to go through a, hey, dude, can I see your sunglasses for a second test? So your pos- your position is that, like, Jordy, and the, the, that visor is basically like glasses, that because someone took his glasses and used it as a magnifying glass to kill an ant, that that's Jordy's fault. I'm not saying it's his fault, but I'm just but saying, saying you should check with out glasses. his glasses when he comes in. <laughs> Buddy. Going to the the going to uh, ten forward. We'll give you real real alcohol. Just hang out for a minute. We're gonna check out your glasses for a, for a minute. We're gonna booze you up. We're gonna t- <laughs> we're gonna take the thing that helps your. <laughs> sounds sounds something. like some pretty severe ableism. Give them um, give give them something. Be like, yeah. all right, you know this sucks for you that like we have to check your your gear out, but like. I don't know, man. When you go through TSA security, uh, they check wheelchairs through a special scanner. Like, all I'm saying is that Jordy's eye thing should get checked out to make sure it doesn't have foreign bugs when he's been under enemy uh, enemy prisoner, considering this has happened multiple times with the same dude. <laughs> Let So, <laughs> look, I agree. He should be in a watch list. I'm not saying he should be a watch list. I'm just saying... I'm no, just I saying, think you are, you are saying he gets, that. I think, he, I'm saying he I gets think, I think, I think what you're supporting is... Once, I, one I time. I think what you're supporting is stop and frisk visor-wise for... The only cast member that was also in Roots. <laughs> all I'm saying, all I'm saying is that... Give Peace a chance. Is that Jordy's sunglasses <laughs> fucked the crew a few times. They, uh, Yeah, they do. I, I mean, he's got to stop getting kidnapped by the Duress I'm saying it's a security threat, okay? You, you check out the glasses. I mean, again, that's what Bloomberg said about backpacks, so... <laughs> All right, but this is a specifically targeted audience. Is there anyone else on the ship who has hackable sunglasses? You've also you've also said space racism doesn't exist, so I feel like this Star Trek is really revealing some dark sides of your psyche. I um, I have revealed that Star Trek is sometimes bad at making um making the humanism translatable, like. Uh, yep, you're like, well, you yeah, said. there's absolutely there, no... You actually said space racism doesn't exist, Peter. Don't try to make... Now you're fancying it up. I, like, here's what I'll say. The Borg are irredeemable. <laughs> Great. <laughs> like, well, the Borg are next week we're going to watch an like, episode yeah. that tries to redeem the Borg. Yeah. Anyways, last thing I want to say before we get into the Kirk card stuff and wrap up this episode. Did you like the lighting on the bridge better? Uh, much better bridge lighting. Absolutely much better. I do like the idea that Greatly um, improved. it it was very so as as an eleven year old it was confusing. I didn't realize why the lighting on the bridge felt off or felt like like um 
not cinematic. It was like, of course. Um, so seeing it in this movie, it was like, why'd they turn all the lights off on the yeah. bridge for all these scenes? It fe- it feels odd. Um, it's coming a nice from warm there, but- sort of glow. Like uh, it- it's not bright and fluorescent and assaultive. Can I ask you a question that you might know? Um, did you recognize that people were wearing two different uniforms? Two different, like between the show and the movie. No, that like, uh, well, that, but also on the on the movie that people had different uniforms. Like some characters had the 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 uniform from the show, and some people had a different uniform. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A few a few characters I noticed that there were costume changes. We talk about co- it's not an unfair question because we talked about costumes extensively in the past uh past episode. I was I was honestly curious. It was like something TNG, that like I just think like T- uh, TNG just basically hit a point where I was like, all the costumes are great. They gave Picard a sick jacket one week, like. Uh, so it's not distracting at all. It's that in movies like one through six, it was like give or take whether or not it would be a really rad looking costume or something horrific. I will say all of, I would say Kirk's outfit in this sucks. It looks like he's, it looks like he's weirdly like a, he's like a space leather neck. It's really bad. Do you know what that outfit is, though? Like, um, so if you take off that red jacket that they use as the costumes for, like, uh, that era of Star Trek, they use them for Star Trek 2 and 6, but they come back on Next Generation if they're, like, showing people 30 years ago or 20 years ago. Those red, like, things. When you take those off, it's that white turtleneck and the vest underneath. So that's what Kirk is wearing. Which I also, if I recall correctly, I did not like either. No, I'm not saying you should like it or not. Like now, now that you know, take it back. But um, but it's pretty so actually what 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 was happening is that so um, you may notice that some of the people I think Picard, Data, Riker, and uh, uh, Jordy um, have um, so the the Star Trek Next Generation outfit is like black on top, and then on the chest area it's the color of whatever your uh, department is. So mm-hmm. either command. Um, technical and engineering or uh, medical or science i was paying attention to the dots at least yeah so the, so the dots are their rank uh, mm-hmm. which you probably figured out for yeah captain. you can figure out because in q's episode man i'm about to impress you so much in the q episode he completely steals picard's uh costume um yeah. including the number of dots yeah and you may they're called pips <laughs> Uh, you, may, you may you may have noticed too that when Riker gets promoted dips. after Picard di- dies, he gets he goes from three to four. But uh, they actually were going to design whole new costumes for this, and then the costumes apparently sucked, and they scrapped them. And so what they costumes use is, are good um, in TNG. I don't know why they would. Sorry, continue. No, I, I agree. So in Deep Space Nine, um, they used similar. Like it's the same thing where it's actually just the colors on the um, shoulder part. And then the rest is black, like a jumpsuit, because they're working at a space station. That was, like, the idea behind those costumes. So what they did was, when the, those costumes were scrapped and they wanted to show some new costumes for some weird reason, they half of them are using Deep Space Nine costumes as, like, jumpsuit. Like, like oh, here's our lazy costumes. And then the other half are using... So it actually, like, because it's still, like, shoulder difference and then... Um, like color, color on the shoulder are the same color. Um, it actually doesn't look that different. Um, in the next movie, they do finally find a new costume that then Deep Space Nine ends up adopting at the same time. Um, 
It's like that's the new that's the new cost that's the new uniform. Um, <laughs> How often then, did people come back from like being off on a long mission and then they're like, "You're still wearing that." So that's actually a great so Voyager, which premiered in like third season of Deep Space Nine. The whole thing with Voyager is they're flung across the Delta quad to the Delta quadrant and are not able to get back to Starfleet. So while Deep Space Nine changed their costumes to match First Contact. Uh, Enterprise ones, uh, Voyager did not. They stuck with the same because costumes. Why, why would they know? Or because they didn't they know. Did yeah. know? Why would they have access to it? Yeah. So they. So that's funny that your hypothetical is 100 percent true. It did happen. Hell yeah. Anyway, I should have been so a last, writer. You should have been. You got it. Uh, so last thing that we definitely somehow have not talked about that much is that. So Picard. So Soren succeeds. Uh, the planet gets destroyed. He gets to this paradise world. This can be a long episode. Let's just lean into it, dude. Let's just lean into it. Um, well, we we talked for an hour about housing stuff, which is why it also feels super late to me. But anyway, yeah, tomorrow's Friday. You can um, sleep. You can go to bed early tomorrow. So yeah, so uh, Picard loses. He does not stop Soren. Soren destroys this um, sun. Uh, destroys a planet of two hundred forty million. Um, and Picard and Soren end up in the Nexus. That's where Picard has that Charles Dickens fantasy of, like, what would it be like to have a family? Um, and once he recognizes what's going on, he runs into Guinan. So we didn't talk about Guinan. Guinan also basically explained, like, who Soren was, uh, that after the Borg killed his family, he kind of became obsessed with finding a way to stop death for himself and get his family back. And he found this paradise ribbon called the Nexus. Um that's what those ships were purposely trying to enter the Nexus They that she was on. They were not trying to – they were not stuck there. They were not accidental that the Enterprise be saved. They were trying to get to this paradise world where uh, basically time time has no meaning and you can create and live It's uh, however you want. And it, it really emphasizes that like these are real. So it's not like the holodeck where you see, oh, here's a kid. I don't remember having you, but it's great to have a kid. You have a kid and you have lived their entire life. You've seen them born. You're Whatever age you're at, you have the memories. And if you want to go back and relive a moment or create a new moment, you can do that. But it's real it to you. And that's very important, especially in a world where holodecks exist, where you can just generate a family and it has no connection to you. So Picard runs into Guinan there and Guinan basically says, yeah, I was partially here and now there's a part of me that's here. It's also a convenient plot device to, to explain what's going on, but we don't need to get into that. He makes the decision longingly looking at his family, who at that moment is his family. He has years of memory of, of their births and everything else and decides to go find... Uh, Guinan says, I can't actually help you go back to the planet, which you can do because you can go... Time has no meaning. You can... Exit the Nexus at any point in the – any place and any time in the universe. So Picard's like, well, I fucking failed the last time, so can you help me? And Guinan says, no, I'm a after image of the person that you knew. I can't do anything about it. Um, but there is someone who also fell into the Nexus, and that, that – and from his perspective, he just got here too. So that has Picard running up to William Shatner as Captain Kirk, who's in this cabin – uh, and Picard essentially tries to enlist his help to come back. Um, and uh, Kirk is kind of like what uh, – we'll talk about how much I love the way that Kirk and Picard uh, interact. 
But Kirk takes a lot of convincing and ultimately realizes that even though this feels real and he wants to finally say, hey, instead of going back to Starfleet and fucking up and being obsessed with the captain's chair and being a captain, even though I should have just settled down and, you know, married this person that I loved, which in the original script was supposed to be uh, Dr. Carol Marcus. And then Rick Berman was like, don't do that, which is so weird. But uh, yeah, they, they end up making her like a beautiful woman on the, off of the distance. Just a random person. But like it makes Carol Marcus makes sense, like, right? Having yeah. a real human being there that would be like sweet and he could sh- share ke- some chemistry so he can understand who he what he was giving up, I think would make the moment more impactful. But the moment's pretty impactful anyway. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so essentially he realizes there's a part where he jumps over a ravine on his horse, which, by the way, that house is William Shatner's. Those are his horses. Cool. Um, um, so he realizes like, oh, the thing that's missing is fear. I used to jump over this little jump and I was scared every time, done a hundred times. I've never not been scared. And he also has to then recognize that paradise isn't real if it has no stakes. And that maybe what he's always, what he wanted, what, why he was so frustrated is that he, he when he was a Starfleet captain, he got to make a difference. Um, and he doesn't get to make a difference anymore. So uh, he convinces Shatner to go back, or also, also Kirk. Um, and this time they, they do stop Soren. Soren dies, and ultimately in that fight, Shatner falls off, uh, gets stuck to a bridge that collapses as he tries to help stop this device that's going off. Picard goes and meets him and says he, you know, He's happy to do it for the captain of the Enterprise, and as he's dying, he looks off into the distance and says, oh my. Uh, and I'm calling that out because it was I, I oh fucking my. love that as Kirk's final words. And Shatner himself said that, like, he thought that's how Kirk, and I don't think there's any character that fits Shatner better. We've talked about that so many times. This is the last time for the foreseeable future we'll talk about Shatner, except for next week where we're covering an original series episode. But... We, uh, you know, it, that idea of like him seeing something new for the first time, which is his death and reacting in that same way an explorer would react, which is what uh, Shatner's the one that lobbied for that line. And I think that line is amazing. Like that idea of looking off and losing life and saying, oh, my, it just fits perfectly. Um, I agree. The, for the record, the, I think it's a good. I think it's a good final line, and I think Kirk's uh, final death moment is actually pretty great for uh, Shatner's range. Yeah. So I also love. I really love the interactions between Kirk and Picard. The way Picard really is kind of like that. You know, um, I'm duty bound, and this is what I believe in, and I've given my life over to this. And Kirk's like, "Hey, Starfleet fucked me so many times. Fuck them." Uh, you know, I was I was going around the galaxy while you were in diapers. Like, leave me alone. Like, I, I love that because that fits with, like, it's such a perfect point for their characters. And it matches, like, that idea of Picard Kirk, Picard Kirk. Would they get along? No, they wouldn't really get along. <laughs> like, they are very different, which is why people hated the next generation. They wanted Kirk. And so I love that it does give him a moment of these kind of two iconic Captain of the Enterprises, but also recognizes that they're not like, Kirk, holy shit, I love you, dude. And he's like, you're the future. Like, I really like the way they handle it. And I love their interactions. And I think Shatner is so good as this kind of like hurt boy who is just like, 
um, so comfortable in his own skin with a huge chip on his shoulder left from from all the retirements that he or in promotions that he ended up taking that we saw both, throughout those he's movies. He's both uncomfortable handing off the authority, but also uncomfortable completely giving. He's uncomfortable handing off the authority, but also when he performs the in the, in the authority and gets credit directly, you know, from anybody but his shipmates. He gets uncomfortable. Yeah. Like reporters and other crews basically giving him credit. He's like, oh, this fucking sucks. But like if Scotty said like, good work, Captain, he'd be like, thanks. You're my yeah, friend. Yeah, and we kind of skipped over the opening scene because we decided to change how we were approaching this. It's just but a great I do way to love... establish who Kirk is as a character, right? He's not in it for the glory. He's in it for the sense of duty and for making sure that his friends get to come home safe. And I love the way Scotty and Chekhov keep rubbing it into him that they know how much he fucking hates all this. Oh, it's great. Like, it's it's great. So, yeah. So, I, I love these scenes. I love where it ends up. I will tell you, Peter, there's not – I don't know if there's a moment – I shouldn't I – mean, I'm using hyperbole, which tends to happen to things that you've loved since you were 11. So, forgive me. But, like, I think a moment that sends chills up my spine every single time did this time as well, is when Kirk realizes that he's going to help Picard. And he sidles up on that horse so perfectly and, like, restarts their last ten minutes of bickering. And Kirk, like, looks at him again and sidles up on that horse so perfectly, I guess because it's his horse, and is like, Captain of the Enterprise, huh? Like, I, that's so good, Peter. Like, I love it so much. I I hope you kind of like it a little bit. Okay, so here, here's how I feel. Let's start with Nexus. Um, okay. At first, my inclination was Nexus was this sort of, like, hollow drug heaven. And that Soren is a drug dealer, a, a drug addict that wants to get back to his drug. Um, and Guinan is, like, a recovering drug addict. Like, they sort of play <laughs> yeah. that in the first. Yeah, I guess that's a little bit there. You can um, see why I don't notice that, because I didn't pick up them at 11. Yeah, and it feels like it's it's uh, uh, digital drugs, right? Like, it's it's like in uh, cyberpunk games or cyberpunk movies where a character just can't take their VR headset off because they're just having sex and the VR module is, is giving them orgasms every 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh not so it, it felt like that the sort of hollow joy and then as it went on i was like it'd actually be more interesting if it was just a fake simulation heaven but the thing is you're giving up real life you're giving up a real impact mm-hmm. and as the, and then when you're approaching the end the fact that picard and kirk are both able to on their own break out of the the sort of simulation and realize it's kind of hollow and it's kind of depressing reminded me of that twilight zone episode where the guy realizes he's actually in hell. He thinks he's in heaven, but he's actually in hell. Like mm-hmm. he's being given like beautiful women and drugs and booze and great meals. And then all of a sudden as things start to fade. He's like, that's all there is. That's all there is. Like it, he realizes that like hedonism has like a, a bottom. Yeah. Uh, um, this isn't hedonism, but it is like, we're going to give you the thing you want most all the time. And the fact that they find that it, I, this is not their intention, but I, I found something kind of hellish in Nexus that like uh, because they were able to break out, become self-aware enough to break out. I was like, oh, this would eventually become a hell, right? Like, no, I'm not saying in 10 years. I'm not saying in 100 years. I'm saying in like 600 years, eventually you'd be like this lack of friction it, it has become a hell for me. And so like. That just the fact that they were able to break out or desirous to break out um, mm-hmm. kind of ruined the concept of Nexus. But I understand why it was dramatically important. 
I, I think what actually ends up happening is that, like, the concept of what Nexus is doesn't work for those two. And again, I didn't see it as a drug thing. But ultimately, I guess like, also they're... Picard doesn't know until uh, Kirk doesn't. Uh, sorry, Picard doesn't know until Guinan tells him. And then Kirk doesn't know until Picard tells him. So basically, it relies on someone else shitting in your punch bowl, right? Well, from I mean, we're seeing both of them at entry, right? Like, there's that part where Picard looks at everyone and starts kind of cry laughing when he realizes this is his family. Um, so I, I don't know. I think I, it's a little shallow in a depiction standpoint, but like, I think I get what they were going for, and I and. The reason I'm saying that as something that actually doesn't bother me or like I recognize it is that that's kind of what a what a lot of next generation episodes that are really good are. They have 40 minutes. So sometimes they they introduce an interesting concept. You get like brothers, really good example. We get probably 10 15 minutes of data and lore and uh soon together. Would I should that have been 40 minutes? Would that have had a lot of interesting stuff? You have to almost, like, subside on those moments, recognizing the limitations of both the structure of network television at the time and a lot of other things. So, like, you don't get the fly episode of, like, Breaking Bad where it's just Jesse and um, uh, Walter in a, in a room together for 45 minutes hashing out their issues because, like, that type of television didn't exist. I, I kind of get – like, that doesn't actually bother them, me that much. And I I think the idea of the drug doesn't bother them, me that much. You have, like, one person who is getting to realize his – the thing that he left behind. He, like, he gets it. He finally gets the – here's the thing that I wistfully said I gave up for the other thing and now I'm presented with it. And he realizes, no, the thing that I always wanted was the – like, that's why I did that. I didn't do that because I made the wrong decision. I did it because I made the right decision, and by making the right decision of who I am and what I should do, I recognize I'm missing out on this thing. And he makes that decision again, even when given that thing, which is the concept of you know having a family and children. Yeah, my um, and, and I think it just take. I think I think just whether or not I believe in the concept of nexus affects yeah. whether or not I think his sacrifice has meaning. Because is he escaping from a digital hell, or is he? Is he, or is he giving up something that is genuinely satisfying and happy for him, but he now knows it's not real? Like the fact that he, like it, that, that sort of, um, did, did did Picard actually kind of shit in his punch bowl and like ruin his good time? Like, would he have been fully happy and sated if he had come to believe this as a real place? And and you're right. Like it happens both so quickly for both of them. There's not this like, oh, I've lived hundreds, the equivalent of hundreds of years in a. Time has no meaning place with this, and now I have to, I have to relearn and break free. But I think ultimately, what you what what is happening is that for both of these two individuals, they lived their dreams. Like they lived exactly what they wanted. Their paradise was what they did. Picard in his role, and Kirk in his. Kirk initially is the one that's more likely to to accept that paradise. Because he feels like he, as he get in that great speech that he gives to Picard, don't let him promote you. Because when you're there, that's where you should be, which is um, just so perfect for what where Kirk ended up. Um, but I think it speaks to, like, their calling was in the real world. They lived their fantasy. They, they lived what they wanted. The Nexus is for someone like a Soren 
who feels like his life and what he wants has been taken from him and he can't get it in the real world anymore. I see uh and 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 that even makes sense for Guinan, right? Like her whole planet was fucking destroyed by the Borg. Same thing with I mean same planet with Soren. So I I get the idea that it's not so much rejecting paradise. It's that they were already living to some extent their paradise by making a difference in the galaxy. Um yeah, I, I ultimately so like I buy the <laughs> idea that he that he, you know, had to give up that duty. I just wanted to dig into the concept of this yeah. sort of like this this uh artificial heaven that you can be woken up from the dream. Um Yeah. And it, I know it, the conflict revolves around that, but um what we we could spend all night talking about like art uh, the concept of heaven and how the concept of heaven is inherently like uh troublesome because like how do you maintain how does a place maintain uh joyfulness uh given the fact that how do we even how do we even um mental how do you even yeah we just play the, the talking concept? head song right? yeah how do you even picture the concept <laughs> of heaven yeah exactly heaven is the best talking head song uh because it when it's over you're like this is a beautiful song and then once you're over you're like Oh, it's it's about how like so how do you repeat the same experiences over and over again and have them still maintain joy? Like, is heaven yeah. just wiping your consciousness every day so you can keep having fun, or is 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 heaven giving you genuinely new experiences every time? Like, what yeah. what is the concept? It, it, that that's something we could literally do like an entire series on. <laughs> that uh, never ends. That never ends yeah. because yeah, that the, the concept of that's uh, the concept of infinity is. Uh, unbounded that's the the entire point yeah but it's the, why the whole thing about them constantly saying like well time has no meaning it's like okay well what does that mean yeah <laughs> yeah and so uh picard's vision of a perfect world is christmas in the victorian era <laughs> kirk thinks he's a cowboy um and they, they they both sacrifice this perfect world for for a sense of duty and because of that if you accept that on its terms um that makes kirk's death super super powerful um and kirk setting up a trap to blow up or uh, picard setting up a trap to blow up soren feels weird um but this is like a big action movie finale so i guess hmm. you know picard gets to blow a man up with a bomb but they get all talk- punched they each get a punch and it's fine like i kind of like it because I, I i guess that's why it didn't bother me because it's kirk kirk says i'd like to yeah I gave up making a difference for a comfortable life I never wanted. We, I wanted to keep making a difference. I wanted to keep risking my life. Can we say so, goodbye to Kirk here really quickly? Um, because we're, we're, we're effectively done with him, right? Well, we will talk about him next. I mean, we're going to talk about him literally next episode because we're doing an episode from the original series that actually, Peter, relates to Star Trek First Contact. And then we're obviously going to talk about Kirk as played by someone else in three movies. So yeah, but let's talk about we're, we're Shatner sa- as Kirk. We're kind of, we are kind of saying goodbye to Shatner as Kirk because uh, we are going to go backwards, but it is backwards into an earlier Shatner. Yeah. So, so here's what I say about the Shatner. I don't think Shatner is actually a bad actor. I think Shatner, uh, I think that a lot of actors, they become the actors they are in whatever era they were busiest in. So mm-hmm. Shatner was fucking working his bones off in the late 60s, early 70s as a TV actor on sound stages, popping into set, you know, doing his lines, going back to his trailer. It was a different era of acting. This was not Brando. This was not, you know, Peter Fonda. This is... 
this is a specific era of acting that that relied on people being consist giving consistent stagey performances. Uh, watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood if you want to know what it's like to give those those sort of performances to the camera um, in a context mm-hmm. where there's like you know normal people walking around having conversations, and then all of a sudden you got to put on your your TV face. Um, he was giving TV more performative, more theatrical, more stagey style of uh, performances in the '60s when he was working as. And you learned Esperanto, so uh, just for us, um, what a, what a hero! Uh, and he was not never a realistic actor. He was never someone no. who was like Jack Nicholson, who learned learned realistic acting, and and then uh, you're Marlon Brando, and then you know both of them eventually wandered away from that because it was boring for them. Um, yeah. And uh, he he he's fun here because it looks like he's putting on a show for both us, like one last little like, uh, you know, Kirk putting on a show, but mm-hmm. also, um, it's it's like he's getting to perform one last time for an, an unseen audience, and that his final moments will be known as moments of a hero, um, and he's like, well, if I'm gonna play, I'm gonna put on the fucking the boots of a hero, I better act like one. And that's why I think his sort of staginess here and his staginess in a lot of his performances of this era is not actually bad. It's it's just, it's a different era of acting and to see it in a more modern, more grounded sort of film uh, can cause some friction. And I think his, I think that while it's, it's it, I don't think that they execute the death of Picard well, like the the, the whole like falling on that bridge and the bridge getting yanked out and all, all that is, is very contrived and very shitty to me. Um, Which but, makes sense because, right, it was contrived as a reshoot to everything they yes. had, that, what they'd already made. So. But once we get to the final moments, I, I made peace with it because, because Shatner, after all my complaints about him as an older actor, Shatner finally found like in this movie, a, a way to say goodbye. That was like yeah. a death with it, dignity, even though he like, says, he says like, uh, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. So God, it's good. Like I, I understand I, that sounded a little bit like final thoughts from you, Peter. So I'm going to build off that a little bit and just say, um, I understand some of this is sentimentality and nostalgia, but I actually bumped this up a half star rating when I watched it this time, because I really just love, like for a two hour movie that doesn't need to be two hours. Um, again, my, this is a movie that a hundred percent works on me seeing it at a, a young age and someone who loved it and loved Kirk and loved Picard and loved Star Trek. And, you know, I, I do get all those feelings watching it again. But I also, like, again, I have a different perspective on Data's performance and Kirk's death and Picard reckoning with mortality. Um, I think it still really works. But I also recognize that uh, I'm definitely, definitely on the high end of the spectrum for my praise, both in, both in contemporary terms from when this movie was released and now. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it was a very satisfying way to say goodbye, even if like the sort of, you know, this is sort of a clunky, clunky mechanics, clunky action sequence. Like, I don't, I completely disagree with the rep that this movie has, at least among film people that like, oh, this is the movie where they dropped a bridge on, on Kirk. Like, uh, no, he gets a lot, he gets death with dignity in this. Like this He rides the bridge. How do they... How could they drop it on him? He's riding it down like a surf bridge. Yeah, he's he's he he could ride horses. He can also ride bridge sections. 
Um, yeah, I love that. Like he's like, yeah, just use my use my Montana house and my horses. Anyways, we're about to we're about to crack three hours in the raw recording time. So let's let's wrap it up. Uh, I I I I think this is a great way to say goodbye to Kirk. Um, ultimately, the way it's executed conceptually, I think it's a nightmare. Um, but <laughs> but uh, but the ultimately the way it's executed minus a little bit of the action sequence that gets us there, I think it's a good way to say goodbye. I, I, I don't yeah. think it's worth the meme. The memification of this movie is that they drop a bridge on Kirk to get rid of him, and it's it, that's not fucking right. It ignores no, the rest uh, of the movie. And again, I, I I will acknowledge all the way through that this is not this is meant for a very limited audience, uh, obsessive Star Trek Next Generation fans who uh, love the idea of Kirk and Picard meeting, and also had a intimate knowledge of Star Trek: The Next Generation as a show. Um, I I'm in that very select group and so this movie worked for me in 1994 and it still works for me today uh really quickly so next week we're going to do first contact we're going to do iborg and we're going to do the original series episode metamorphosis for our related um a related show so we do get one last uh tos episode uh at least for now i'm sure we'll at some point dip back in there's there's a couple oh no i know we're dipping back in for when we get back to Chris Pine era Kirk on a couple episodes. So uh, excited for that. Now, Peter, the last thing I'm going to leave you with is we were going to get a different Borg movie if William Shatner had his way. So in a very Shatner-like fashion, because even though I love his portrayal as Kirk, uh, he's the fucking worst in real life. Um, He he, uh, was like, oh, yeah, I I don't want you to stop making Star Trek. I'd like to keep being in the Star Trek movies. So he wrote a pitch to Paramount about, let's get the old Shatner back in the next Next Generation movie, which was about uh, Romulans finding his dead body and using a boy and the Borg come back who are now working with Romulans and they resurrect Kirk and basically make him the next Locutus. Um, and Spock's in it because Spock's around in the next generation timeline and Spock has to rescue um, Kirk from the Borg and then then uh, Kirk and Spock team up with the next generation crew to defeat the Borg. Uh, it's an early age of the internet. I was aware of this and was like super excited in like 1995. Uh, that this was that this seemed like it was going to happen. Paramount passed pretty hard, from what I can tell. Um, and the reason I know so much about it is that instead uh, of forgetting this, is that Shatner didn't did not take his uh, did not take his ball and go home. Instead, he took his ball and turned it into a, a different sort of ball. He turned his baseball into a football, as you were, and he wrote uh, he wrote the thing into a novel called The Return. Uh, which came out uh, at the same time as the movie First Contact, oh, which I, of course, read that novel. That is so bitter. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the, from the writer of, of Tech War? <laughs> I forgot it's about Tech, tech War. Universe. He's yeah. an author. I mean, he always had sh- – so uh, Judith uh, Reeves was his co-writer. And then he made a sequel to that novel that I also read, which came out in 1998. Um, it has a very generic title. I think it's like Ascension or something with uh, with what happens after that. So Kirk, uh, so, so in an alternate universe, we could not be done with Shatner. We could be watching Borg plus Shatner 
I love the idea that like Paramount's like, no, 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 like this was the handoff. This was the official handoff. We're making next generation movies, and Kirk's like, yeah, but what if we don't? What if they're supporting characters to my movie, where I'm back again, baby? And Here everyone's I go like, again on my own. Uh, and then Spock's there. Like it sounds like it sounds like what someone says um, when they're like they're dying breath, and everyone goes, okay. He's like, and then the Borg come, and Romulans are working with him, and Spock's there. It's like, he's he's fading pretty fast now. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, that could be the movie that we were much doing. longer now. And they, and then the Borg, the Borg that tell me I have a very handsome physique for my age. <laughs> and then there's a woman Borg who tries to fuck me, and I'm like, hold on there, sister. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so we almost got that version, but there really was a sense, I'll tell you, even from 1995, again, I'm going on GeoCities, Peter. I have a friend in seventh grade who designed his own website about how much he loves Star Trek. Uh, maybe we'll get into some of this next time, maybe we won't. But there really was a feeling like, well, they're doing the board next time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and they did. And we, uh, will be talking about it. So, until next time, oh my... <laughs> Oh my.